All right, good evening everybody. We are returning from executive session and we are going to get started. So the first item of business on our agenda this evening is our superintendent's report, item D. Uh, we have Mr. Folan uh, here to present his district progress, highlights, and accolades report. Hey, thank you very much. Welcome everyone. Again, happy summer. My first item on the update is just around communication. Um, and I, I have a letter that's drafted that's going out to the community and I started as such uh, around the second week of August. Everyone really is trying to start hanging on to summer and sort of cherish every moment and um, maybe we'll have one more excursion and, and have some fun. But it's also the time definitely when uh, parents and guardians, families, um, educators as well, students maybe, uh, they start thinking about school and sort of the prep and the information that's needed. So our team of, of principals will be sending out communication. Uh, mine's going to kick it off just kind of alerting everyone to check your emails and see the many documents that will come out. Uh, there's a lot of dates, a lot of information. We try to package it up well so you can still hang on to summer but also know what's going on with the start of school. Um, with that, um, I just want to thank our administrators who do work through the summer uh, and have done a, a great deal of hiring. Uh, think long and hard about what is best for students and what is best for the families and the communication really articulates that. And There's a lot of meet and greet opportunities, there's a lot of open houses uh, and always just want to say that they, they are the first line of communication. Um, there can be a lot of questions whether you're new to Canton, new to a, a building, we have some new administrators in the district. Just reach out directly to them. And then, of course, once the uh, class sets are given, then we can reach out directly as well to, to teachers to have those first lines of communication. They love having that interaction. Being connected is really important. And uh, they usually have the information that you're looking for and need. So we welcome that. Uh, and again, it's not to end anyone's summer early, but it's also to make sure that we're ready to uh, have a great school year ahead of us. Uh, one note uh, is the first day of school, so this is always important uh, as well. And we are before Labor Day. We start with students on Wednesday, August 31st. That's for grades 1 through 12. The second day is Thursday, September 1st. Friday, September 2nd is no school. So we designed that. There's a four-day weekend. Uh, it's that one opportunity maybe as a family to enjoy that longer weekend one more time. Uh, we get a little taste of school and then we really get into it from there. Uh, after that, uh, just a reminder for kindergarten, Tuesday, September 6th, the first day there, and Wednesday, September 7th is the first day for pre-K. Uh, other uh, announcements, and we're going to say this over and over again, you'll see it from the Hanson and the Loose. Uh, in our district, there is one elementary school that's deemed the late school, just based on uh, the tiers for busing. Uh, and this year, uh, it is Hanson who's the late school, Mr. Broniger who's in the the crowd this evening uh, is going to continue to send messages he did at the end of last year. So essentially, uh, it's important to know that shift in time. It's a 9-10 start and a 3-25 dismissal. Loose, which was the late school, is now with JFK, 8.40 a.m. and dismiss at 2.55. So we're going to keep saying that over and over again, and we're sure that there might be some bumps in that shift. Uh, but we'll get there, and it'll be well known by all. My next topic is uh, something that uh, was discussed by the Commissioner of Education, which is the health and safety updates uh, with regard to the return of school. Uh, so I'm speaking specifically around COVID. 
the narrative and circumstances at this time last year we were having a great uptick in it and um, there was a lot of discussions in uh, mitigating uh, mitigation that we had to consider thankfully we're in a much better place the commissioner is excited to have a year of some normalcy and a really strong focus on well-being and teaching and learning uh, but it does still exist and there's still some things that folks will want to know this will be its own uh, item that we push out from our nursing team but essentially the quickest way to explain it to everyone is how we ended last year and this is how the commissioner said it how we ended last year is how we're starting this year so masks are optional uh, we want to make sure that we have an environment whether it's staff students or a family member are supported if they want to wear a mask and that's a, a school culture and a welcoming and a belonging aspect um, you don't know what anyone's uh, medical circumstance family circumstance so we want to make sure that is supported but they are still optional uh, we still have our air purifiers in the room windows will be open accordingly we know that's a really great uh, way to, to, to keep that virus down and then the daily self-monitoring of symptoms and communication with the, the school nurse there's just a number of people that I know that have uh, had COVID over the summer and it's always uh, prompted by some level of symptoms so there is some telling elements so we ask that folks continue to monitor the symptoms don't ignore them call the school nurse get some advice on how to proceed that's still in place um, hand hygiene we know that's a factor um, here's some changes though pool testing will not be offered uh, here in this district and, and by the state as well self-test kits which were part of something that was introduced by the state and school districts January through June those will not be handed out this year either um, they certainly are available and if someone needs help getting them or any of this aspect we can help with that process the one thing that will remain is symptomatic symptomatic testing within the schools by our nurses provided the releases is, is filled out the health annex will remain as well um, because it is still present other aspects that are there one big protocol is if you are uh, if you do test positive you have to call the nurse immediately you are out for the five days provided symptoms subside uh, then return on day six with uh, wearing a mask and on day 10 provided things have improved uh, you can uh, not wear that mask anymore most everyone got used to that particular protocol that remains the same the the uh, commissioner emphasized that that's staying there sometimes it might be different for other workplaces but schools are remaining there masks are still going to be required for the nursing office or any health offices that's consistent with what we see in society uh, and for good reason as well um, there's other things uh, our nurse leader uh, Lauren Bouchard put this line in here that protocols for outside close contacts and how that interaction happens is found there again no changes everything uh, where we were in the springtime and really in the summertime here and at this time we do not have to report our COVID cases to DESE they said everything is subject to change uh, they still consult with their medical team all the time as well as our local team we consult with um, and they'll continue if things change or if something happens but there was a level of hope and a level of optimism that as we enter this year uh, there was that charge to to have some level of normalcy and open in a, a really uh, welcoming and joyous way uh, and to really pay attention to the well-being of staff and students and to focus on teaching and learning so that's the message that we've embraced here in this district and also the message of our commissioner 
Another uh, great uh, thing to announce is uh, Canton backpacks that students last year received from CASA. We have them again going out to students. So I believe it's fourth and, and ninth grade, um, but we're going to get a specific email uh, that's going to be coming soon from our wellness coordinator, uh, Adam Hughes. It's something that's been a great collaboration. CASA is the uh, Canton Alliance Against Substance Abuse. Support from all the town departments. Um, it is a town committee, uh, and there is an allocation that backpacks are really something that kids use all the time. It's a source of pride, as the Canton see on it, and they are stuffed with items that promote well-being and healthy, healthy choices, healthy lifestyles. So it's very excited to do that. And um, a nice con community connection as well. They will be handed out on Sunday, uh, August 28th at the farmer's market. Uh, that is an opportunity to have families come there, see the farmer's market, also get the backpacks. We are being helped by our high school students that are part of the student wellness um, uh, advisory group and then also the character crew and the wellness team. So that's going to be exciting. That's a back-to-school day for the farmer's market on August 28th, uh, and this will be one of the, the key events from it. Again, you're going to get a specific letter about that. Canton Academy, what can we say? Uh, they've had a year in which uh, they reached an unprecedented number of 700 kids. Um, they take a variety of enrichment classes. Uh, we have our own teachers involved in this. Uh, Mr. Armico oversees it. It continually ends up being a great learning experience and a great um, something that folks schedule and mark uh, to make sure that they have and go through. So that was held at the loose. We thank everyone involved with that. It takes a lot. There's nurses, there's teachers, there's coordination, um, but it goes off and really provides incredible learning experiences, memories, and a lot of creativity. Um, there's some excitement. Mr. Amico is very adept at sending a lot of videos, just sharing some of the, the really nice moments that happened there. In uh, our summer scholars, an extended school year ended today. Had the chance to visit uh, all of the programs. I stopped in at GMS today. I was incredibly impressed with the engagement. Um, the students, especially on their last day, you could tell that they built a rapport with one another. Uh, they talk about it and the staff talk about it, especially from the students that did it last year. There's a carryover that happens to the school year that builds them as a student. It's not just one particular subject area skill, but just the, the element that they were working on. Today they were building um, those mechanical or prosthetic hands, uh, and it was an active, I, I was really, really impressed. Um, they were very proud to show them off. Uh, but just the coming in, the routine, the attendance, the focus, the attachment to staff, it really builds skills that allow them during the normal school year to succeed and grow as a student. So. Thank you. A number of our staff were involved with that. The extended school year uh, provides really important and special experiences. So those are coming to a close. We're now moving into robotics, drama, and band. They'll be running camps over the next two weeks. So these buildings are never empty. Um, so kudos to the custodians who are trying to clean when there's still a number of students uh, running around. And then uh, it's time to, to set our calendars and to set our schedules. So we have new educator orientation coming up, that is three days uh, in which we go through their welcome to Canton to make sure that they are the best that they can be. And one day in particular, they are in their classroom setting up, working with their principals and getting to know their, their spaces. We have a substitute orientation on the 25th. We have new student orientation at the Hanson on the 24th. School committee meeting on the 25th. Uh, we then have all staff reporting on the 29th. 
Hanson open house on the 29th. This is some of the information you're going to see in those communications going home. Teachers report to work uh, as well on the 30th, so two days without students. We have a loose open house on the 30th. We have a JFK open house on the 30th, first day for students, which is, if you're in education, that is the best day. It, there is like, it's special, there's energy, everything's new, um, everyone has high hopes, uh, and you know, for as much as we love summer, we love our students and we love when they walk through that door and have that moment. We love seeing our staff back in the building doing their work, what they love and care, care about. So those are exciting times. Uh, then we have Labor Day, first day for kindergarten, first day for pre-K, and we come back on September 8th with the school cleaning unit. And that is my report. All right, fantastic. The Canton schools team and schools have been busy during the summer, and it's something that I don't think everybody is fully aware of. It's like the best kept secret in terms of how much energy and uh, work and uh, enrichment really does happen during, uh, during the summertime. So thank you for that report. Uh, any other comments or questions from the committee? I wanted to express a thank you to the Rodman Foundation also. Uh, they donated tickets to Wicked, and both of my kids were able to go. And it was so exciting for them to get on the bus and go to Boston and get to see Wicked. Um, so thank you to the Rodman Foundation. We really do have some amazing support in this community. Absolutely. And to CASA, again, for those great backpacks that we've seen. Every Which are town still with. being used. Yes, I saw yes, one at the camp today. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Any other comments? Let me just clarify one thing. Yes. That the open house, the school open houses are just for kindergarten and first grade. Just wanted yes. to clarify Thank that. You. That the other open houses will be later. Yes. Sorry, for the other grades. Okay. All right, moving on to the next item, and that is item E teaching and learning. Welcome, Ms. Deb Rooney here to provide us a Title I update. Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you. I haven't seen you all in a while. I'm excited to finally get to come and talk to you about Title I. Um, as you know, we are a district that offers Title I support in reading at our elementary schools. And um, last year was the first year we actually were able to offer Title I support at all three of our elementary schools. Um, so just a little context on how the funding works. We submit an application annually to the Department of Ed for Title I funding. Um, in order for a school to qualify for support in Title I, they have to have at least 15% of their students in that economically disadvantaged category. And so prior to last year, JFK did not have that level of, of, of need. Um, and so uh, this year, they, they bumped up, and we were able to, to provide some support there as well, which is great. Um, but the way the funding works, we get money based on the number of econo economically disadvantaged students that are in the district. We, as a district, have always provided Title I support in reading um, in grades one through five. That's been the focus of our work in those areas. Um, and the, the regulations really ask us to prioritize the schools with the highest level of need. And so based on our data, uh, we uh, were able to place two tutors at the Hanson School, two tutors at the Luce School, and one tutor at JFK. Um, and that tutor worked really closely with the reading specialist at JFK, and it was really nice to be able to, up to provide that additional level of support at JFK as well as the other two schools this year. Um, so we saw that work out really well. Um, as you know, Ms. Abrams came on board this year as our humanities coordinator, and she did some amazing work 
um, in coordinating really the services across all three schools. And so last year was a year where we really tried to make, be really specific about the cycles of support and what the schedule was going to look like and how we were using our benchmark assessment data to help us really look at who the kids were that were in the most need and how we were able to figure out who was going to get support. So um, what you have is a copy of the report that just goes in our Title I folder for when the Department of Ed comes to take a look at what we've been doing. Um, so as you can see, we had a lot of students that were able to benefit from um, some Title I support across the schools last year. Um, that will continue next year. We're going to have a very similar process in place where we'll do our benchmark assessments, we'll look at the data, we'll figure out how many kids are we are we're able to support and who's going to take who and, and all of that. Um, and there will be, again, four cycles of support that happen across the course of the year. Um, and on we will go. Um, we are working a lot to try to improve our communication with parents. That's been a recurring theme over the past few years. Uh, <clears throat> And it's, and it's kind of a, a different process, really, because it's not the classroom teachers that are providing the Title I support, it's the Title I tutors. And so they often are communicating with the parents, but we really try to make sure that they're communicating through the teacher so that there's really good communication across all of the people. Um, but one of the things that Ms. Abrams is working on is really thinking about progress reports and how we send information home to those families at the end of a cycle so they know kind of how we've progress monitored their child and where they are and whether they're going to continue in Title I or whether they're going to exit out. There are some kids that will be on for a cycle and then off for a cycle and they may not come back again at all and other kids that may stay on for multiple cycles during the year. Um, and that can be a little bit of a confusing process for parents. So we're working to really to try to use the resources now that we have the data available with the tools that we have to be able to share more frequently with parents some information on how their kids are doing. So that will be our work for this year coming forward to really try to get a better handle on all of that. And uh, we will be able to continue. We just I just met with Michelle Gobi in our business office yesterday to get the Title I applications ready. Um, so we'll be submitting that um, hopefully by the end of August. And once that gets approved, we'll be ready to go to get started again for next year. So any questions? I have a quick kind of general question about um, the selection process. Mm -hmm. So um, and, and also just sort of thinking for the future. So I understand their scores and how, how schools are selected, but, but generally speaking, um, do you see, are we seeing trends where uh, it's likely that the schools will continue to have title support year over year, or really does it wild, wildly fluctuate based on funding in the state or pri other priorities? Is there some consistency to know that this is something that may continue for us? Because I, I do think it is really beneficial. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't envision a time where we as a district didn't have Title I support coming in. The question is how much, mm -hmm. right? And would JFK continue to have enough of a, of a need that we could justify using some of the funding to support them as well? That's kind of the pieces that would fluctuate, but I don't, I wouldn't envision us not having any Title I support in play. It's just a, in, based on the formula that they use at the state level. Um, where we land. We also have Title funds that come in other categories as well. Title I is the student-facing one. Title II is the one that helps us with staff development. Title III helps us with our multi-language learner students. So there's other funding sources that all come into that title grant. Um, and it, it, depending on student numbers, is really where what drives the funding in all of those. And just one quick follow-up. So every year do we reapply or are we just identified? Every year we reapply. Right. It's just every district, I think, does as part of the process. Right. Yeah. 
thanks for all your work on that. And identifying these areas for improvement. It makes it really clear, and I do think there's been some persistent interest in um, parents getting more communication about yeah. the program. So thank you. I have a question about, um, thank you for the update. This is very interesting. Um, I'm assuming that the equity evaluation or the funding evaluation is established for the year, right? Or do you get those grant money quarterly? Are you getting it all in a lump sum? So we apply, the applications are due like by the end of September, and once you know what you qualify for, they just put it into your budget. And right, just, okay. Yep. So that makes sense. Um, I think my question is really around the fluctuation of the numbers. Mm -hmm. So what is that based on? It, it, for people not looking at the sheet, um, the Kennedy had 43 in cycle two and mm -hmm. 31 in cycle three. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a good jump of kids that were supported and then are not in this particular way. Yep. How does that work? Yep, so, um, and the Kennedy's a hard one, right? Because we only have the one tutor at that school, so it could fluctuate a little bit based on the group sizes and all of that. Um, we use our benchmark assessment data, uh, and then the reading specialists meet with Ms. Abrams, and they look at the data and figure, try to figure out the, the these interventions all happen during the, the uh, wind block, the flex block, however, whatever each of the schools calls it. So the math specialists and the reading specialists are both vying for kids. And so it's possible that that was a cycle where the math specialist said, we're getting ready for MCAS. You've had them for two cycles now. I need them. That's, math is not reflected in these numbers. So I, there's a lot of factors that go into who was seen where and when. So my guess would be the math specialist had a lot of kids in the upper grades during that window because she was getting kids ready for MCAS. Okay. So it's possible that that's why the number was, the reading specialist was not able to take as many kids because they can't be in two places at once. That's very logical. Um, is there any, what happens when a child is deemed above, like they've achieved a mm -hmm. superior level than they had before and yep. they no longer need the support. Yep. How so, are they monitored? So they, the same, the same as, as every other child, right? So um, the grade level teams will meet to look at the data once the benchmark assessments are given and we've done that universal screener. And so that's where they really will look at all of the kids. Each classroom teacher is able to look at her list and say, you know, I really want to flag this kid. I really am worried that he hasn't had title one yet and I think he needs a turn. And all of those conversations happen with the classroom teachers as well. Um, and they have you know, the ability to just try to figure out who's going to go where, when. If I'm a student that's staying in class, the classroom teacher is the person that would continue to provide intervention for that student. And whether they're working on a computer on Freckle or whether they're working in small group with the teacher, they would be getting some additional support back in the classroom during that time. All right, so it sounds like it is still very student-centric. Mm -hmm. um, thank you very much for this update. Any other comments? Just a couple of questions for the evening. So it's economically disadvantaged, 15% of our population. So that qualifies schools or yes. District 4 now uh, for Title I. Now, with once the Title I support is available, is it just restricted to economically disadvantaged, or it's, it's based on schools? Quite scores? the opposite, okay. actually. You are, you're, once the funding is in, yeah. you're expected to use that funding to support any student that has a need, not just the students that are labeled as economically disadvantaged, because most of our, our staff in their building don't know who those kids are. You work for the district? Do we hire them? Like, how does that work? Yep, so they actually work for the district. They okay. work on a part-time basis, so they're in the building for less than 20 hours a week, um, and they have a more flexible schedule, so they come in kind of later in the morning, and they stay for most of the day, but they're not there for the full day. And typically, 
with any sort of funding, whether it's federal or state, there's all sorts of strings. Are there certain qualifications that Title I tutors have to meet in order to be hired? So what what, what do they bring to the table, Yeah, so, to so we're looking for certified teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had a teacher who was a beloved Canton teacher for many, many, many years who retired, and she was like, you know, I'm retiring, but I'm kind of not ready to retire, and we hired her as a Title I tutor. Um, so we often have retired teachers who are looking for more of a part-time um, position. Sometimes you'll have certified teachers who have been home with their children, and the, that shorter work day works really well for them because their kids are in school, so they can come and work that shorter day. But they, we typically are looking for people that have a, a, a teaching license and ideally a reading certificate of some sort. Cycle on or cycle off? I don't understand that. So I would think if a kid has needs, so to speak, it would be for the year. So is it they cycle off when they've reached a certain level? How does that work? Yeah, so it really depends on our capacity and how many we can serve. We try to keep the group small, right? If you've got 10 kids in a, in a tutoring group, that's not going to give them the benefit that they need. Um, and so we really try to keep group sizes down at four or five kids in a group. Um, the math and reading specialists and the Title I tutors are all vying for kids, so it's really this interesting, intricate process where they meet with the classroom teachers, they look at how kids did, how did they do on their last universal screener, how did they do on this one, have we seen progress, and they really try to map out, like, how many kids can we handle taking? Um, does this kid transition well? Does this kid not transition well? Would he be better off staying with me in class and I'm going to do whatever with him? You know, all of those conversations happen um, on the grade-level teams. Um, and some kids will be on, and, and they seem like they're doing fine and back in, and then the teacher might say, like, yeah, he was really not, he hasn't maintained. Can you take him back in again? And they might go back in again. So, for example, would a child cycle off? He or she has reached grade-level reading? Potentially, okay. yep. Okay. Yep. And then, so it sounds like that's the communication piece with parents to understand the cycle on, cycle off. Yep. Okay, great. Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, moving on to the next item, which is F new business. So we have our uh, first item under this, which is our school handbooks. And we have an assortment of our all-star administrators here, our uh, building principals and others, to present the school handbooks for a first read. And I understand that this year is an improvement, a departure and an improvement from years past, and so there's a bit of an overview to how that will all work. Welcome, Ms. Byrne. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. So um, I'm going to present the district appendix, which um, has always historically stood alone from the different handbooks. The appendix really houses all of our policies, procedures that go pre-K to 12, and the large majority of it is based on Massachusetts law, federal law, and uh, the Massachusetts Code of Regulations. So We review this every year. We typically involve um, a legal review as well as different department heads just to really make sure that what we're communicating is the most up-to-date information um, and that we're in compliance. The handbooks themselves, I believe, are going to be um, digital, digitized, uh, and Ms. Shore, I'm sure, is very excited to present more about that when she returns. But um, the appendix, we considered whether or not we should stack it in each individual school handbook. And the reality is the appendix is very lengthy, and we want the handbooks to be really user-friendly so that parents and students can really highlight on the need-to-know information and then have the appendix be an attachment, as you could always go then back and forth and reference you know, the full and the, the more lengthy um, information that, that's relevant to specific interest areas. So in reviewing the appendix, 
Most of the changes this year um, were, you know, minor tweaks to wording. There were some areas where we wanted to list the full legal statute that applied. So I put together an appendix changes highlighted document for all of you so that you can see. And I'll just kind of run through it and then pause on some of the more substantive changes. Um, the first section under residency, we just clarified it to add um, the Every Student Succeeds Act in addition to the other legal statutes that were quoted. The only substantive change there was really um, adding bullying issues as a potential uh, reason for why you may be removed from your neighborhood school. That's on page 10. I kind of pause and I will, I speak quickly, so just uh, give a wave if you need me to slow down. Um, but that's on page 10. And then it was just some wording tweaks around the, um, the legal language there. Under uh, the protection of pupil rights amendments on page 14, that was just clarification of wording um, and adding that, you know, student um, confidentiality documents could potentially have um, students can share that information if they're requiring financial assistance. So it's just a little bit of clarity on that. The same with attendance. That was just um, page 17, updating sections one and two to be direct quotes of the legal statutes that apply. And um, same thing with English language learners. It was just nomenclature change to really refer to um, English learners as English language education. So those are just um, brief changes there. The next substantive change is really under electronic devices, which you'll find on page 20. And it was just recommended that we add um, use of video conferencing under our code of conduct for digital devices and also specify that um, students are prohibited from using teacher equipment without their permission. Following that was under field trips. So we added on page, if you look on uh, pages 26 and 27, we added that um, if there's a financial cost associated with a field trip, we obviously would want to be, um, you know, pretty apparent that we financial assistance would be available for families and that they can seek that out. The big change in this section was the addition of overnight field trips, um, which we said were really exciting. And uh, we know students and uh, families really uh, enjoy those experiences. So we added a paragraph about overnight field trips there. Um, and had some discussion around whether or not the 60-day notification was the most appropriate time frame. Um, so, you know, as you're considering this and as we potentially go to our second read, thinking about do we want to add some language there to mirror, um, you know, maybe 45 days, similar to some of our other procedures, or sooner at the discretion of the superintendent of the school committee. The other piece that we were talking about here a little bit was the need to maybe add some language around out-of-state field trips and how they apply similar to overnight ones, just some additional planning. May I offer a pause for a moment? Sure. So what Ms. Burns is reading is she had sort of a cheat sheet. It's in the electronic packet. Um, so I just want to make sure if you, if you have that opportunity, it might help following through. I love that she's telling the page numbers. Because right. I'm going to, I, I noticed the cheat sheet, but I yeah. get the full picture. Great. <laughs> so, yeah, it's good. Okay. Awesome. So uh, the next section was around temporary home or hospital education, and that's for students who have to be um, absent from school for a prolonged period due to medical need. And it's just updating some language about how we obtain documentation of that. So physician's orders, um, written information on page 27. You'll also see some updated language under the homeschooling section there on the exact same page, and it's really just around um, the criteria for families when they submit to the district for homeschooling and uh, ensuring the competency and that we have lesson planning and appropriate 
information to support uh, parents who wish to avail themselves of that. Following that, we have a new section on page 28 and 29, um, which was recommended that we add some clarification and procedures around students who wish to permanently leave school. So um, this is a, a really, it's a safeguard. So it gives some timelines and requirements. If a student chooses to leave school, um, the building administration is required to notify the family within a specific criteria of days. And then it also goes through, um, you know, giving advance notice to schedule an exit interview with some certain required um, individuals to be part of that process. And that's really just to help us understand, um, you know, why our students are leaving, make sure that we're giving them proper notification and that kids aren't falling off the radar, um, you know, should they just stop attending school. Okay, just jumping on that one. So one aspect there, uh, th this is really born out of uh, some regulations that were put in place a few years ago um, where they wanted to make sure that that folks weren't just invisible and, and not attending school anymore. So when they consider dropout rate and realize sometimes these interviews can change one's mind to stay in school, um, it also allows us to stay in contact in the future. Um, but it's really a practice and as written, it's it's for anyone at any point in time that might be leaving the district to have that conversation and to track that uh, element. So originally designed to, to temper and um, really put kids in a path of making sure they know all their options. We want them to stay in school, um, but it's also something as well, as we know, uh, the ins and outs of, of folks in our district, it's a, a good opportunity to follow as a pattern for all students. Yeah, and we're also required to give them, you know, information about what potential next steps are for them, um, which is nice, too. So that is now included. The next one is a minor uh, change on page 30 under the wellness education uh, section, and it really has to do with students with concussions and the um, requirements with regards to physical education. So students who have concussions are not required to do like makeup activities in physical education. They may go to the nurse's office and as opposed to doing any kind of alternative physical activity, which is just really designed to allow them to rest um, and recover. The next section has quite a bit of change that you'll notice. It's the code of conduct section and that falls under, um, starts on page 32. The idea behind this section was to really reorganize it. So it used to list all of the, um, the codes and regulations that applied to discipline, and it had very brief conduct violations. And um, the recommendation was really around to look a little bit more at what are our code of conduct violations that we have and really spell them out. Also, behavior expectations. And then also to provide, um, you know, really the process for responding to those code of conduct violations and then include the legal uh, regulations around suspension and long-term suspension and things like that. Um, so the legal wording hasn't changed. We just added a lot of um, our, our expectations around restorative practices, um, specifically what those are. And you'll see when we get to the building handbooks, um, the schools did a lot of work outlining some of this and coming together on it. We took the most extensive for the appendix being that Things will fall, they should fall with under the, the broadest uh, realm of all of that information. So, not necessarily applying to all students, but it's there in case uh, something came up at the younger levels as well. There was also some redundancy in some of the paragraphs, so we tried to clean it up a little bit and just make it clear and concise. 
And then um, you'll also see on page 41 and 42, we changed the word may, we changed the word will to may. And that just gives the um, administrator in the building some more flexibility about how they want to apply, um, you know, different suspension, whether it's suspension or any kind of punitive action, as opposed to saying will, it gives some flexibility there to take into consideration, um, you know, any, any other factors. Following that, um, there was an update to the tobacco and electronic cigarette policy on page 44, and we just updated that whole paragraph um, so that we had basically more clarity and wording around how it applies and that it also includes members of the public as well as students and staff. Yeah, go ahead. Page 41, under the general information regarding discipline, it number two says the principal shall notify the Kent Police Department whenever a student is committed da -da -da -da, upon a school staff member. Is there the same language for upon another student? Not necessarily, because there's a different, um, there's a different discipline code okay. that applies. So there's a more severe, if you will, um, statute under 37H that if basically assault on a staff member has a different a different set of punishment if you will or a different set of actions that occur different things to consider as opposed to just student on student and that's not to say I mean it's always law enforcement may you know what I mean be notified just depending on the severity of the incident but they do delineate staff for a reason because it falls under a different code good thank you yeah does anybody else have questions about what I've gone through already? It, this is a lot of changes, so I'm happy to wait until the end and we can flip around, but if it makes sense to pause, I don't mind. No, I th I'd say continue, and the, the benefit is this is a first read. We actually have the mm -hmm. chance to take it home and digest and ask some more, so continue, please. Perfect. The next section is on hazing, and that's page 45. We always referenced hazing. We just didn't have a definition for it previously. So that's now been added, and it also um, added the addition of law enforcement being contacted under that section as well. On page 53, you'll just note that we updated um, the harassment section to include all protected classes, and that flows throughout some of the handbooks as well. You'll see those um, highlighted just to make sure that we're in compliance. Under the media release section on page 62, we just removed language around assumed consent. So previously, if you didn't send back the media release accepting um, for your child, it was assumed that you could publish their picture. We need to make sure that we actually have consent. We can't assume that we have consent. Uh, the next is purchasing school meals. So you'll just note that it um, annotates now in our appendix that free meals have been extended to June. June of 2023, which we're very excited about. And then following that, under health services, um, there's a fair amount of change in this section. Uh, Ms. Pochard went through it with a, a fine-tooth comb this time and really wanted to bring, in my opinion, it's these are like the frequently asked questions, things that come up all the time. She went through, she updated all the contacts. She really um, tried to highlight things that come up. We added some additional language um, around reasons to stay home, so GI things, COVID, obviously, the flu, and just highlighting um, clarity around what requires what physician's documentation and what doesn't, what does the nurse need to have her eyes on, um, updates to medication plans, medication storage procedures. I think she tried to get in everything, um, you know, like I said, that comes up or the nurses in the buildings get a lot of questions about so that we can refer families to this information. Um, and it's there, you know, whenever they choose to reference it. 
The next section was um, to update our restraint policy in the appendix, actually to match school committee policy, so that's good. Uh, that was a direct copy from what was already established. And then there were some updates to the student services section on page 80 through 83, which was just um, clarifying how to schedule if parents want to schedule observations of their child's programming and up updates to homelessness rights and um, the Educational Stability Act for Students in Foster Care. There are changes to those uh, policies that we just needed to align our appendix so that we're um, matched with the state regulations. And then finally, under transportation, we are now very pleased to announce that we will have video and audio surveillance uh, during transportation, which I think will make um, things much easier and us able to better support our students to ride safely to and from school. Very comprehensive, and as I mentioned, um, the fact that it's a first read gives us the time to kind of take and digest. Um, I do appreciate that over the past at least four years, I don't know exactly when the evolution started towards this district handbook and trying to have those policies that um, are applicable to all of our schools throughout the district in one place, and now to move it to an electronic format, I think is going to be very, very helpful. I think the plan is also to have a PDF version yes. as well for folks who want to print, so thank you for that. Um, I don't have any other comments at this moment because I want to take the time, um, but I want to ask the school committee if there are any prior to moving to the next two pieces of this, which will be the individual handbooks, and then there's one more component that comes later. Yeah, I have a quick question, so thank you for explaining all this. Um, on page 26, it's talking about the field trips, and only because school committee has referenced a couple of times about approving it, or approving trips, um, out, of field, out of state field trips do we have to approve? So I'm not sure if this would be a policy thing or a handbook thing, but that would be a question I would flag that should we be stating here when we need to get involved with approving things. So, Kendall, I see you're shaking I'm your head. I'm shaking my head because that's something. We, so Ms. Byrne, Mr. Fallen, and I met earlier this week, and that's one of the things that we discussed. Okay. Great. And the other question I had was around the code of conduct. And um, I'm just curious, because certainly the... Um, the two pieces I really like seeing are just the commitment to reaching out to families and parents and getting everyone in the loop, looks like early on, what's going on if there's a situation. In terms of the um, restorative practices, restorative solutions, how is it going to work? So for example, I know last year there was question. at least I had questions around, is it the frontline teacher who does it? Is it, will it now move to some of the administrative office? Because I mean, obviously the elementary is going to be different than the high school and the middle school. So how does it, like, who's, do, who's actually going to be doing it? Yeah, that's a great question, and um, it's something that, quite frankly, we review in schools every year and yeah. revisit a lot with staff because, um, you know, we always have turnover or, you know, change in, in our best practices, but it really varies. Each school is going to be identifying sort of what are the specific things that are managed, almost like a tier one, tier two, mm -hmm. tier three. Obviously, there are always offenses that go straight to the top, mm -hmm. um, and, and we're trying to develop different notification systems for the schools to be able to track that information for themselves. You know, was it something that I is it calling out? Is it disruptive? Was I able to manage it in my classroom? How do I track that, right? It's gonna look really different at the elementary level than the high school level. Um, so each school will have their own system about 
who responds to what type of thing. The other piece to consider is, you know, is it three offenses, one right after another, that you may want to involve someone sooner? So there has to be um, just an ongoing monitoring of that data collection, too, at each building. Um, and then the third piece would be trends. So I think, you know, if there's a student that's repeatedly engaging in a low-level behavior um, that hasn't all school year, that might involve someone, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. higher up kind of looking in or saying if they can address it, as opposed to it happened once in September, it happened once in January, and now it's June, and, and it was all managed in the classroom. So I think it's just going to be each building identifying what those tiered things are and who to call when. It's the most important thing for teachers to know, kind of what the expectations are about who to call when and how to get help if you need it. Yeah, because just in reading through it, it really looked like it was really framed around, again, middle and high that have those assistant principals, dean of students, whatever, they have those upper, you know, they have the more administrators, if you will, than the elementary. Yes. So my question becomes, um, do we need more specificity in this to really outline, so going into the school year, everybody knows the clarity. I understand it's sort of a work in progress, but for the purposes of voting on this, my, cons my question is, and I ask this of the committee, do we want more specificity? Because I, I'm really, really looking at the elementary level where the classroom teacher, you know, I think is tasked with so much already, and then this could be potentially one more thing unless there's more clarity. So I ask that of the committee, do we need more clarity around how this is going to, how this is actually going to work? So I feel like we're sort of here, and we still need some more granular. So I'm just curious what the committee thinks. Can I just interject one comment? Sure. I think mm -hmm. when we go through the elementary handbook, mm -hmm. too, you'll see. Okay. So when we did the code of conduct, because it's the district appendix, mm -hmm. we tried to take the broadest range. So these are all the things that could potentially happen or come up. And then each school is going to kind of go through so that it is more, um, you know, child-friendly and, and appropriately developmentally. I mean, I think at the elementary level, you're also probably um, – in each building see some kind of delineation between what I would consider like K to two. Your responses to K to two are gonna feel a little different than three to five to. Um, so that's really the, done at the building level. But I think when we get to the elementary handbook, they've each all tweaked their own code of conduct and done behavioral expectations. Um, hopefully we're not still saying like walking feet at the high school level, right? So, but it would still be like hallway behavior, but it would be um, developmentally appropriate. So happy to take another look at it as well when we go into the appendix piece, but I, I think maybe we'll get some more clarity when you go through the, the different levels. Great, thank you. Okay, anyone else? Thank you. I'm gonna wait down here because I'll be back yes. to the uh, Radman Preschool Handbook. Yes. Well. yes. Thank you. Who's next? Okay, so thank you very, very much. Uh, that was a lot of work with our attorney and then also trying to make sure that um, it had a certain flow to it as well. So thank you, Ms. Uh We have our principals here and uh, our dean of students as well uh, for the middle school and uh, they're all going to take and, and speak to their handbooks briefly at the high level about what's new what has changed um, there is a level of specificity uh, you know the district appendix is supposed to be an overarching element it is supposed to be more specific one element that I want to talk about we talked about the district appendix which is a standalone document based on legal counsel that's all of our statutes and regulations as Ms. Byrne just talked about it runs side by side with the handbooks. Uh, the handbooks a little, uh, are going to look a little bit different this year, especially at the elementary level. You'll see during their presentation, we have gone to one elementary handbook that spans across all of them uh, and will speak specifically how we're going to have 
maybe what's specific to Luce and Hanson uh, and JFK, there's an opportunity for a document to show what that looks like as well. So a little bit of a change there. We heard about uh, the ability to have it online on a Google site that's very accessible uh, and folks can navigate it through. It will have a PDF. Uh, but the version that what's happening to preface here before I have Mr. Sperling coming up from the, the CHS to kick us off is that this work is done, it's put out to families. Um, it's an important document that folks have available and know. It, it really sets the expectations for accountability, sets the expectations of how we operate and communicate with one another. Um, and it's something that uh, there are standing committees and their school councils work on throughout the entire year. Uh, they are finalized and finished and tweaked and we get legal advice as well. Uh, but one of the things our schools are always evolving so there's practices and events and elements that are happening you want to make sure you have language that's responsive to it so that's one aspect you want to make sure you're in line with uh, the legal and, and policies of the district uh, and then the final part is um, you also want to go through it and make sure that what you have in the handbook is still in practice sometimes over years you'll say is that something that's happening or is that uh, still relevant to the school so I, I say that uh, as, a, as a strong preface because I know Mr. Sperling, come on down, Mr. Sperling from CHS, our principal there. He went through and, and did a, uh, led a pretty heavy review and really tried to make sure that uh, what was in the handbook was current day practice, so. Thank you. Um, so you have kind of the cheat sheet or executive summary, I guess we'll call it, which will kind of walk you through. Um, and again, a lot of the changes were identifying those areas that were maybe past practice or some outdated language in, in certain sections. Um, so I'll just go through those fairly quickly. And then there's two areas that had some uh, more substantial change that I'll spotlight a little bit more in detail just to preface your, your reading of that. Um, in more detail. So um, on page seven, again, it was just adding uh, the term ethnicity to the listed specified classifications that was missing. That was um, advice given to us to include that. Page eight was the daily schedule. Partway through last year, um, early on in last year, but once the year started, we added a fourth lunch. Um, didn't change the periods, any of that stuff, but we just wanted to make sure that that was accurately reflected uh, in the handbook as well. Updating staff listing, as Mr. Follin had mentioned earlier, we're still doing some hiring, so there'll be a couple of TBAs in there still, but we'll get those um, wrapped up very soon, I'm sure. Uh, other stuff to page 12, the, the wording and the language of the directed and self-directed studies just could use a little refresher, so we kind of clean that up. No changes to the actual definitions or, or logistics, we just put it in bullet form to make it easier to read. Uh, driver's education, We, uh, Ms. Kathy Osborne retired and Ms. Charlotte Nix took over, so we just wanted to update that section with the appropriate contact person. Uh, page 14 is the military obligations. The wording was still in there for the No Child Left Behind Act, which has been replaced with Every Student Succeeds Act. So we just wanted to stay current, make sure we had the right act in there. Um, and then there's also been language added to that um, practice or policy where students that are 18 years or older can choose to not have their information shared. Um, students under 18, it has to come from the parents, which had been in there previously. We did not have the language about students that were 18 or above, so we just wanted to get in compliance with that. 
Uh, field trips and student travel, again, will continue to sort of overlap with the district appendix and the school committee policies on those. So I would ask when you're reading through our section on that to kind of look with that lens to make sure it does look consistent with those other two areas. We want to make sure that we're putting the same information out to families. Um, we did add some language about medication uh, being required and documented and on file, and that was really, really important. Um, we also added some language particular to financial constraints. So we left it purposefully vague because there are so many different types of trips. There are some that have no cost. Um, there are some that it's a nominal cost. But then for us especially, we have some sort of extensive trips that we're talking several thousands of dollars in, in payment plans and things like that. So we just want to be able to work with families in those individual situations for whatever that may entail. Um, we can certainly add some more detailed language to that if we feel like it's necessary, um, but we did want to put it out there that that was absolutely um, an option, that families would just need to work with us individually um, for their own sort of discretion and to make sure that there wasn't kind of this blanket statement. Our library section, which was page 16 and 17, that one had some outdated, um, probably pre-COVID practices uh, that we were able to get rid of. Um, so we just removed some of the past language. Um, kids had historically uh, needed their student IDs to check out books or to check out loaner devices. We don't need that anymore. There's a much more streamlined system. Um, it was also, we added in there that students could replace lost books with good condition, that's supposed to say, not conduction. Um, so they can find a, a, a good condition book on Amazon or somewhere else, and, and that's perfectly suitable. That language had not been in there previously, so it would lead a family to believe that they could only pay the replacement cost issued by the school, but um, they have some more options with that now. Um, page 17, we will link in the program of studies, which we felt was a really good um, way to streamline parents that are looking for additional information. So we did have a lot of overlap in our academic section, and it was the exact language from our program of studies. So it was um, duplicated, and now with the ability to link the program of studies right in there and those sections, families won't have to hunt around between different documents. It'll all be tied into the same one. And we can do the same with the program of studies and add a handbook link right to there where it's relevant. So um, should hopefully make it more efficient and, and give them everything they need uh, at each landing spot. The academic honor code section, which is in 17 and 19, had been in there. So that covers uh, definitions of plagiarism, plagiarism versus collaboration, um, good old-fashioned cheating that's still in there and defined. Um, but our handbook review committee took some time to really work on clarifying those definitions to make sure that students were clear. It's an issue we deal with a lot uh, where students are working on a group project and they may all turn in the same document. They want to be cautious. Is that plagiarism? Was that collaboration? So we went through and, and just expanded those definitions. We worked with our English department. We worked with our social studies department uh, to make sure that the definitions were actually what was in practice. Um, and, and I think we landed on a really clear, concise, uh, good reference document that families can reference. And our teachers can use it in the classroom as well. So um, go right ahead. Yeah, of course. Um, on that particular topic with the collaboration and the plagiarism, yeah. how is that handled if something comes up within a classroom? 
so there is an academic integrity sort of policy or procedures um, that if it's documented that a student was found to use someone else's work, um, go out and sort of get something off the internet and turn it in as their own, it would be handled as an academic consequence. Um, and again, it ties into the restorative practices and giving kids opportunities to kind of learn from that mistake. Um, repeated offenses of that can result in um, sort of grades being removed and things like that. So. Space for grace, you know, especially at the Absolutely. start of the year when you're trying to figure out which teachers work in which directions. Most definitely, and I think our teachers do a really good job of explaining kind of what those standards are. Kids are going to make mistakes. Um, it's more the deliberate. This is my friend's homework. I'm going to take it, copy it, put my name on it, and turn it in. Um, those are few and far between. What we deal with more often than not is kids just not being clear on the definition, and I think. What we've put in the handbook now, I think, again, teachers can really use to make sure that it's very clear and consistent across all classes. I think we were missing that a little bit previous to this, so I hope. Yep. Land with, um, as it rises up, administration is always notified, parents are notified. Um, sometimes there's some very hearty conversations that happen in those offices around them, and then you know, the, the grace does come in. It's not always, it's clear cut, and you have to make some some decisions that happen there, but that's where it lands uh, within this and how, how how you deal with it is very challenging, and, and that's what Mr. Sperling is talking about, but the conversations and the accountability are there in many different ways. So, yeah. um, Moving on, page 21, uh, early college and dual enrollment. We just updated that to reflect sort of the new terminology, which is the Commonwealth Dual Enrollment Partnership. Um, so I, I was able to kind of find their definition and very similar to the previous dual enrollment. Um, the early college program seems to have changed a little bit. So um, there's a similar version, but it's all in partnership with individual colleges. It's not as open as it used to be. Uh, so we sort of redefine that Commonwealth dual enrollment partnership that are opportunities for our kids to participate in that as well. Anything where it would be the previous definition of early college is now an individual district partnering with a school to provide those opportunities. Sometimes it's for only certain types of students or, or pre-identified students. Um, so that's going to be a, a initiative that we're going to continue to work on and um, hopefully identify some colleges that we can partner with. So. Uh, attendance procedures, that was sort of a major overhaul. Um, I'll spend a little bit more time after I finish the general um, summary just going over that. But I would encourage you to, um, if you're going to spend a lot of time reading through it, that's probably a good place to land because there's uh, some really good improvements there. But it, it's it's going to read very different from previous handbooks. So, um, Code of conduct, again, we had added a lot of good language last year, um, which I think was very well received by our school community. We wanted to expand that even further um, and really carry through those restorative practices and what they mean at the high school. We added in a lot on uh, progressive accountability. Previous to that, it had sort of been progressive discipline, and, and it was interesting to see the Hamburg Review Committee, um, our staff, my school council, really come to the understanding that the term discipline is not a bad thing. But when it read that way in code of conduct and behavioral expectations, it sounded like discipline was a, a negative. So adjusting that term to accountability, which is taking right from the restorative practice training, we actually 
some of us sat through day one today, um, just so that we're consistent with that language and make sure that we mean the same thing when we say that. So the accountability piece just lands nicer with that restorative piece that it can be disciplinary consequences, that's a level of accountability. It can be kind of repairing relationships within the building, that's accountability, and that's all spelled out in much more detail than it was last year and is uh, very consistent with what you'll see from the Galvin Middle School as well, so that sort of 6 through 12, we're speaking the same language. Uh, athletics, 34 and 38. Uh, we just took a look at, again, what was in there, and there was some outdated information, um, mention of a specific insurance company that I don't think the district uses anymore. So just some things like that to clean up. One of the pieces that we did look at was really making sure we were aligned with the MIAA and their governances. And, and one area that we weren't quite consistent with was the, the chemical health violation section. So for student athletes that um, end up with issues related to drugs, alcohol, vaping, any of that stuff, we wanted to make sure we were lockstep with what their procedures call for as a partner school. So we are now 100% consistent. So if anyone in the community references what they call the blue book, which is the MIA athletic handbook, it is the exact same language and policies for us now, which we felt like was a good step just to make sure we were consistent. And we also, for attendance related, attendance situations related to athletic participation is now consistent with what's in our overall attendance. So, um, there weren't conflicting language before, but it wasn't quite clear that it was all the same and tied in together. So that ties into extracurriculars as well as athletics. So music programs, theater, things like that, it's all consistent. So for all of our students now, um, sort of their attendance procedures and expectations applies equally. So it's not, it doesn't feel more heavy handed just for the athletes than it would for our other students. It, it's sort of equally um, important for students to have proper attendance. And then just the clubs and the student activities, um, that's kind of a revolving process. We have clubs kind of ebb and flow based on student interest. So with the ability now to link in that list, we can keep that accurate. So if someone checks it in September, um, Maybe we don't have all the clubs that we'll have come January, but we can keep that list updated. So each time someone goes in and checks, that list will be accurate and updated, which hadn't been the, the practice previously. All right. um, so if you don't mind, just for a minute, I'll kind of do some high-level stuff with the attendance, um, just to, to kind of point you in the right direction as you look through that. Um, so again, this was developed through our handbook review committee, as well as the school council, um, athletic director, music director, clubs, activities, um, lots of stakeholders in this to really help us guide it. We also referenced and, and built it using six or seven area similar high school uh, attendance procedures as well. To We had phone calls with them. We had actual meetings to figure out, like, okay, what do you love about it? Kind of what's an area that we might want to avoid? What are some pitfalls that we could look at? And, and we took all that together, presented all that information, um, and kind of settled on where we landed. So one of the main additions to this is to sort of add that absence limit that had been missing. Um, these vary from school to school. Some allow very few absences, but they have very loose definitions of what's excused and what's unexcused. Other schools are more open in terms of you get X number of days, use them as you wish. Um, if you exceed those, there'll certainly you know, be some conversations prior to that. Um, 
we sort of landed in between where students will have general days that they can use at their discretion, certainly still with parent phone calls and parent notification. Um, what we were hearing from certain schools that had what I'll call rigid attendance policies is there's a bit of an equity piece there that if there's a family that has really good access to doctor's notes, Every day is excused. If you've got families that don't quite have those resources, they struggle to get anything excused. And it just tipped the scale a little bit between sort of the, the students that can get days excused and miss a lot of school with no consequences and maybe those students that can't. So um, we took that feedback from area schools and, and sort of landed on an area where we'll give you X number of days, um, certainly excusing days for you know certain absences and things like that. But for the most part, your days are your days. Um, we're going to hope that you use them liberally and not use them all in one week or two weeks and involving our counseling department, our nursing staff as well to really map through that. So um, the other piece that we added in there that the language will be included um, is our notification process that, that we want to make sure when a student hits four absences or four tardies that that notification goes out. Um, we've been doing that, but we wanted to make sure that that was clearly communicated to the families as well. Um, we don't want to wait until they're already in trouble. We want to make sure that they know as they're approaching that number. Um, we're also going to rely on our homeschool interventionist. Uh, when those notices go out, that list will also be shared with her, so she'll be able to start that work right away and, and just engaging with the families. Um, the piece, too, that, that we've done, but I don't think we really clarified, is that we track absences for full days, but we certainly track them class by class. Um, so for students that maybe arrive 45 minutes late three days a week, they may be missing some of the same classes in the course of a term exponentially more than they're missing other classes. Um, so when we look at it in an individual schedule as they go through high school, each class is as important as the other. So the full day absences don't quite mean as much as those individual class by class absences. Um, so we've got a good system in our current student information system for tracking that. Um, we started some new procedures last year to make sure that we were building that expectation and that culture and our, our teachers responded very, very well. So um, we feel like we're in a really good place to, to solidify that further moving forward. Um, and then again, just the attendance procedures are, are very consistent with the restorative practices. So in every instance, families will have the opportunity to have conversations, have meetings with us, um, be able to discuss the particulars. If a student does find themselves exceeding the limit of those absences, um, there may be credit involved, things like that, that there's an appeal process um, will allow the families to come in and kind of discuss their particular situation. So. Um, Again, it was well received by, by all the different constituents that we put it out there, but I would definitely welcome your input. And um, it is a change. We, we realize when we have our parent information sessions, um, once it's sort of landed where it's going to land, we really want to spend some time clarifying this. I think our incoming ninth graders don't know any different, so you know they, they should be okay with it. But uh, for some of our upperclassmen, this is not the attendance that they've known. Um, I don't think it will. We, we ran a quick list at the end of last year to see how many students um, would have gotten themselves sort of in a predicament of exceeding the limit, and it was about 30 or 32. So out of 900, it, it's not a ton, but it's, it's a worthwhile number that we need to do some work to make sure that the students know um, kind of what those updated expectations are. So... I want to commend you and the team for doing this work because it's been long in coming and it, it lines up very nicely with the regulations and expectations that from Desi. Um, there's high level of accountability, there's high level of communication.
is opportunity to understand circumstances, but the, the expectation, as we know, is to come to school every single day, and we realize once in a while if you're sick or if they, you, you, ha you fall into a COVID protocol or if there's a unique circumstance. Um, but the expectation is to learn at the highest level and grow at the highest level. You have to be in school. Uh, so schools have to have good policies and procedures uh, to promote strong attendance. From DESE's standpoint, uh, it was part of the commissioner's call. They, they are reemphasizing the importance of attendance. Uh, we will be, uh, Mr. Fogel, at some point in time, will be talking to us as a, as a group uh, around the accountability report card for districts. Attendance and, and chronic, chronic absenteeism is part of that uh, accountability report. Uh, if I'm correct, Mr. Fogel, it went from a 10% value to a 20% value. Is that correct? Uh, that value is what the commissioner had proposed to the board. Mm -hmm. uh, the board is currently taking that into consideration for a vote for any day now. Yeah, so this is, in our accountability as a district, this high value mm -hmm. of our uh, percentage of attendance uh, and those who uh, may fall into the chronic absenteeism. So there's an expectation that we monitor and have lots of conversations and correct that as, as needed. Um, and I, I just think that's uh, that's the strong message that comes out of it. They've worked in a number of different ways to monitor it uh, more than ever been before, uh, but also it's it's for the good of the communication and good of the uh, of the student body to know there are high expectations with regard to attendance. Um, and with that high accountability comes high level support as well. So I think your work as a team and the language in this uh, really brings us in line, matches high standards, high expectations, but also high level support. And DESE does not distinguish between excused and unexcused. That was one other key in point. That's an internal mechanism. That, that's for accountability of like, do the parents know where the students are, truancy and, and such, and so you have to have that in the building. When they look at it, they say, Jeff Sperling, have you been in school Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? There's, they're not looking for doctor's notes, they're not worried about if you skip school or you're sick. Either you're there or you're not there. They take a pretty hard stance on that. And that's where they get their number from. They're not looking for a school's accountability system or marketing system of it. Uh, excused or otherwise. So there is a pretty high standard that we have to meet and uh, it's important for everyone to know that. Terrific. It does sound like um, this work that you've done has the capacity to make some significant impact <coughs> at scale based on what um, uh, Mr. Follin is saying in terms of obviously making sure students are present but everyone is clear on the expectations and then that helps drive us um, to perform better as a district uh, in the, you know, through the lens of Jesse and otherwise. I think this is fantastic. I want to just say that as you move forward, and I haven't got to read the manual thoroughly, but related to attendance and being present and related to code of conduct and discipline, um, the question for me, maybe it's not solved this year, it's coming because there's only so many leaps, giant leaps forward we can make, is about device use. Mm -hmm and um, the ability to be mentally present even if you are physically present and what what we can really um, consistently say and then support our teachers with in terms of some sorts of policies about how those devices get put away that 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 would be the only piece that is either maybe here or absent and like i said for exploration in the future perhaps other comments or 
questions from the committee? Ms. Yes. Gallagher? Um, Thank you for this. I agree with Ms. Miranda's comments that this is going to help us find and make sure that we are following up with the students that need that kind of support. Um, so hopefully that will have a positive impact. I am curious about the medical appointments, the bereavement, illness, not being part of an excused absence. So it, usually where those land, um, the state puts out like four absences per half year, which seems extremely tight. Um, so we chose to really expand that, which gets us at that. Our eight absences is sort of that 20% in a term just under, so that keeps students from being considered chronically absent. That was a conversation that we had had. Um, those are certainly situations that can fall under other. Um, and again, if, if a family communicates that to us, there certainly wouldn't be any negative connotations or, or impacts on that. Um, what we would, sort of where the committee landed was to try to reduce sort of the qualifiers as much as possible and just allow families to make those decisions on their own. Um, but that was an area that we did have some extensive conversations about. Of, uh, do we do a list of sort of everything, or do we just kind of leave it that it's more of a catch-all knowing that we will have those conversations with those particular families? So, um. Is there, you know, I mean, I, and I hear what you're saying, and I think that makes a lot of sense, and I agree with the approach of not proactively putting a lot of options that they can pick from to be absent. Yep. Um, I think that's definitely the right angle. The only counterpoint would be that the other absence is part of the four bulleted list of things that are okay. In the discussion below, encouraging the families to talk to the administration. Um, and it, I think that's, it's almost here, but maybe making that more explicit. Thank you. Thank you so much for all the thought and work that's gone into this and thrilled in particular about the attendance, the clarification and all the research you've done on, on what other districts have done. I had a district parent talk to me recently um, with a high schooler where the child apparently, uh, before this was put in place of course as we're talking about it now, um, if the child was going to be late to school there was a threshold of where it was better in the child's eyes to be absent for the day than before. So I think this this covers that loophole that existed before. And that's an important piece of period by period attendance being so important that it takes that that scale right off the plate. That if you miss a couple of classes, okay, let's not miss all of them. So I, yeah, so I took a look at the old uh, attendance policy, and this is great. I think it clarifies it. It, it, it gives real numbers, if you will, like 8.15 or whatever. So it, everyone's clear. It's not uh, interpretive of what time you walk, you walk in. So I think that is very, very helpful. The other thing, too, it seems like um, the old policy was it was kind of up to the, you know, tardies to certain periods would be addressed by the specific teacher. This ta I feel like this takes it off the teacher's plate because the teacher has enough to do instead of puts it, whether it's administration, but it, it's one less thing for a teacher to have to navigate. Um, the question I have about students missing 15 minutes or more of any class is that that's not just being late. That's if they step out go to the bathroom. It go, can be, but those yeah. are those conversations. Yeah. So uh, there are those situations where um, a student will 
miss a quiz. We'll spend 25 minutes in the restroom. For, so, so those can be considered. And again, the, the language of may, I think, is really important. Uh, there's always going to be individual situations, but um, we really wanted to phrase things in a way that drives those conversations, tying back to those restorative, sort of building that community within the classroom. So. It used to be handled eighth more eighth eight or more tardies then you'd get a meeting with the family fifth tardy you'd be you get a letter I mean that's kind of at this point in time that's really down a rabbit hole it's too far right so I, I think again this what we're hearing is an articulation about reaching out to families sooner rather than later to making sure everyone's on the same page and just a quick question so high school teachers take attendance at each class yes correct okay and is it sent electronically how's how's that done so it's done through our student information system okay um, and then they submit it, our administrative assistants pull it sure. in, they post the daily bulletin, but then it's updated in real time. Okay. So if I'm a fourth period teacher, mm -hmm. I can go in and see that students not in the seat mm -hmm. isn't marked absent. We now have a mechanism for a student uh, teacher to send out right. a missing student email that goes to all the probable places a student would mm -hmm. be. We've been able to track that throughout the course of this year, and it's worked exceptionally well to identify students. So I'll be curious, sort of the end of the year with Mr. Fogel now, be interesting to see how this all plays out, how the numbers are adjusted, um, what, what, what the up, up, upshot is. And really the final question I'll bring back to the restorative practices. So at the high school, can you be specific about how those will work at the high school? Yes. Yep. Okay. So the way that it stands now is, is we are... We're using one end of the restorative practices, which feels reactionary. Um, so incident happens, consequences take shape, and then there's the work done to return the student to that classroom environment, return them to that social group, whatever the situation is. What we're learning through our training with Suffolk is that there's much more important work to be done on the front side, uh, and that's building those communities in individual classrooms, in the larger school. Those are areas that we're going to need to train our staff on. Um, I think administratively we've got a pretty good handle on it, and I think a lot of people have that philosophy in those roles, whether they define it as restorative practices or not. It's just good professionalism and, and a good way to deal with students and behavior. Um, I think as a district, as we refine our understanding of it and bring that into the individual classrooms, it's really more about empowering the teachers to develop those skills with their students from day one. So whether it's their routines for opening the class on the first day of school or how they manage um, small conflicts within the classroom that they can prevent from becoming larger conflicts. Um, we're probably working in the reverse order, but it's kind of where our level of competence is with it right now is I think we've got a really good handle on um, working with students to make sure that they feel valued. If they make mistakes, we treat it as a mistake. Um, working with teachers, other students, to make sure that any damage done, any harm done, that we can work through and, and give those students opportunities. The next phase of that, which is probably where it should start and will start long term, is to build those skills and those senses of community in each individual classroom. So how will that play with the teachers? When do they get professional development? I mean, you know, how is that going to work, you know, specifically for teachers? Yep. How does that not add to what they're already doing in the classrooms? And then secondly, the education piece of how does it get communicated and educated out to parents, what yes. this means. So essentially, the, the sessions that we're going through now, they've been very clear that expect three to five years before this is sort of part of the culture and part of the water. Um, 
it's a shared understanding of even what they mean by that. So I think people assume it's only in response to an incident, and it's not. Um, I would say that based on my time in the classrooms, we have a lot of teachers doing this already that are building really good senses of community in their classrooms. Um, they have rituals and routines where kids are checking in, reporting on their weekends. Teachers are asking them about how their game went or how the ski trip was. and It's just those little things. It's really not anything formal it's not a task that they have to prepare for it's it's more of sort of this this philosophy of kind of bringing the room together and and we will have teacher teams being trained as well through our partnership with Suffolk um so that will sort of start to get that ball rolling with the teachers and and they're excited for it we've had teachers ask to be part of it um already so I don't think it will take long for it to really get out into the community but we also want to be thoughtful about it and even the presenters today from Suffolk said if 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 you try to do these things without being comfortable with them or really trained on on some of them if you haven't built that sense of community there isn't a community to restore um so just some of those pieces that i i think as we all get back to sort of the traditional canton public schools that we know and love those senses of community in the classrooms and uh in our group settings will just build naturally and, and it'll be ripe to have these practices kind of put in there more formally and then to get so I think just defining it to families, what we mean when we say that, and I think that was some of the work that we tried to do with the additional language in the handbook was really spell it out clearer. Um, I think people, you know, even came up in the training today that people hear restorative practices, oh, that means there's no consequences. That's not what it means. But to really be clear and to make sure that people know what we mean when we say that, because it can mean different things. It means something very different, um, you know, in the prison system than it does in a school, but it's, it's the same terminology. So for us to be able to define that more detailed, what we mean when we say it, what it looks like for your student, um, hopefully the language in the handbook clarifies that more, but that's only step one. I have a follow-up just to that. Sure. And, um, the restorative practices are referred to on page 27 and then repeated again. And it's, I think it's okay that it's repeated in the, um, the appendix because it is, I, I think this, there, there are tweaks here, yep. obviously, and it's important that the definitions are there. I see the definition in underneath accountability. Um, 2A is restorative accountability, and then 2AI is any restorative approach. Uh, to an incident or conflict will be with the intent to assist a student or students to accept accountability by working with them to one, acknowledge responsibility, two, directly engage with the person or people impacted, and three, agree to a plan to avoid similar incidents or behavior moving forward. And I say this because if that isn't the intent of where folks are supposed to be um, made more aware of what we mean by restorative practices, then... Um, you know, may, maybe there is an opportunity for for a call out, but at minimum, I'm thinking because it is the, the words that come before it are restorative accountability. Yeah. Maybe if either we call it restorative accountability, or we maybe just add in the words restorative practices so people can find it easily. Yeah. And again, if that isn't the full definition, this is the opportunity if somebody's yeah, looking for absolutely. it. Absolutely, just a thought. And again, your perspective reading it kind of from a parent perspective is important as well. Cause Where did my eyes go to? Like, you know, and I tried <laughs> to glint the whole thing. This is, it seems to be what this is about. Yeah. I believe there's more to it just because I've been also, yeah. I've gotten a full hour education yeah. from Ms. Lamour on it and yeah. it's fantastic. But, but that's what I'm reading. Absolutely. So. Um, one other comment is just, because um, I, I noticed it in flipping through, this might, again, this year or next year, but I know a lot of work has been done to better define and implement the student advisory member 
role and responsibility. I know we have student council in here, so whether or not that's an easy add or if that's something that you work with Ms. Cummings or CETO, if, she, if they return uh, on, that might be something great to help codify and then make permanent. Absolutely. That's an easy add. Other thoughts? All right. Well, thank you for this. And this is, um, is this a, a first read as well? First yeah. Read. So if any other comments come up. All right. Absolutely. We really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, who's next? Okay, Mr. <laughs> Mulhern, Mr. Gibson from the middle school. Good evening, everyone. I'm um, very pleased to be here. I'm pleased that um, Karim Gibson, who was our Dean of Students, was able to join us. Uh, he was kind enough to agree to be here to help me because I do not have a lot of um, knowledge of precedent with some of the questions that may come up. And so um, I appreciate his taking the time to be here to help with those. Um, I sincerely hope that a year from now I will have a more comprehensive uh, <laughs> presentation along the lines of Mr. Sperling for you. But in all transparency, I have not yet spent a full school day at the Galvin Middle School, uh, even though I've been officially on the job since July 1st. So. August 31st will be my first day, and I, as someone who has spent quite a bit of time both crafting policy and enforcing policy in another environment, I have a healthy respect for precedent, and I really want to make sure I see how the policies that are in place impact the students and families on a daily basis and as the year goes along, uh, and, and certainly engage the school council and the broader community throughout the year uh, in, in looking at what we can tweak. So that's my little preamble. I want to highlight a couple of nuts and bolts changes that the leadership team did put in in the spring that I think are very sensible um, to address some sort of uh, everyday protocols and procedures. Uh, first, um, that we are going to the phone away all day uh, policy that was enacted in the spring. We are going to, to codify that in the, in the handbook. Uh, we think that's very important. Um, along with the phone away all day and other forms of smart technology, um, not you know granted permission by the teacher, uh, if you scroll down or go to the dress code sections on page 24, uh, we are also uh, going to removal of hats and hoods throughout the day with, of course, the exception of any religious head coverings. Um, all of that to sort of send the message that what we want from our students is full engagement, uh, their full presence uh, in the classroom, um, and obvious and on a on a different you know level, we want to be able to quickly identify students as well uh, for safety reasons. And so, um, those are important changes that the leadership team decided on in the spring. Certainly, that I support, and we will certainly see how uh, those look in practice uh, as as we get the school year rolling. So the the major highlight that I want to draw your attention to really is in the code of conduct section. This is the major area where the language from the former handbook was revamped. None of it represents a policy change per se, uh, but we did want to bring our code of conduct philosophy, our approach to behavioral interventions into alignment uh, with certainly with the high school because we don't feel that there's a whole world of difference between middle school and high school behavioral intervention um, best practices. And I want to uh, acknowledge uh, and thank Mr. Sperling for taking some time to meet with me. We actually had a meeting last week where we 
took a took a look at the handbook side by side and made sure uh, that the language aligned in a in a reasonable and sensible way uh, across our two institutions. Um, I just I, I will echo what Mr. Sperling said when it comes to restorative uh, practices. I think it's very very important, uh, and I know Ms. Moran, you've had questions about specifics and. Um, what I can tell you from my experience is that what restorative justice practice looks like in a very practical sense when it comes to mitigating or, or uh, resolving disputes between students is really getting students to look at the difference between intent versus impact. And when it comes to middle school specifically, what I spent a lot of time dealing with are um, social media related um, posting and messaging and um, otherwise students who think that they're sending something as a joke, quote unquote, and is not received as a joke. And I think it did not spare the offending student from a consequence, you know, along the, the code of conduct lines. But it was very, very important that conversations were held where the student who posted the offensive material um, or retaliated against somebody else who posted something was made to understand, here is what you may have intended, but here is how that comment landed with the person. Um, and can you imagine what it feels like if you're on the receiving end of the comment you put in? All of this, you know, with the understanding that young people do not have fully developed brains and uh, what I'm probably not telling you anything you don't know, what adolescents will do, particularly at the middle school uh, age, is that they will do before they think. And we have to keep that in mind at all times, you know, in our disciplinary interventions. And so part of really being a truly restorative um, institution when it comes to meeting out discipline through the code of conduct is that piece, making sure that they reflect on the impact of their actions uh, so that they learn and so that they don't repeat it. And so I think if you scroll through, you know, you'll see that our language around the philosophy governing our approach uh, aligns very closely to the high school and is in line with the district priorities as well. Um, so those are really the areas I wanted to highlight. Um, again, I know that's shorter and hopefully sweeter, um, and I hope for a lengthier update next year, but I'm happy to field any questions, or Mr. Gibson is as well. Well, thank you and welcome, and it's, it's great to see you both. I would say, um, for sure, we totally understand and actually appreciate what you mentioned in the preamble about taking into context everything that is precedent and seeing how the policy is playing out. Fabulous. Um, and also understanding that what was just done um, at the high school in terms of the, the deeper work on definition of attendance and helping to clarify that is hot off the press. But it would seem to me that there might be... Um, uh, an area to potentially also gain some consistency between the handbooks when it comes to um, absence definition and it just helps as our students are learning to um, fit the format of high school in so many other ways in middle school uh, that maybe that's that's an area to explore so that I, I agree with you and I think um, it's been mentioned before but I'll, I'll mention again there the balance between the high expectations from the state on attendance and accountability we don't want anyone to go missing without follow-up. At the same time, I do think it's smart to leave ourselves uh, room for the outliers. There are, unfortunately, exceptions sometimes with very difficult circumstances behind them, and we want to make sure that we do have 
enough flexibility to grant grace when it's appropriate uh, to, to allow students who find themselves in very difficult circumstances to catch up and, and not lose an entire year, um, you know, as sometimes is a risk for happening. All right, fantastic. And, and just one last follow-up. And so thank you for um, including and then highlighting the Away for the Day policy at the, the Galvin, which I think is fantastic and needed. I am going to make the assumption that the way that ties to the code of conduct, at least in this, this cursory read, is that there's a, the, a bullet that talks about um, insubordination or failure to comply or ignoring the request of a staff member. So that, that may be where it's, of course, number one, it's a policy, but two, we will enforce it. There'll be consequences if students are repeat. Yes, and I think, flyers. Um, yes, that's, that's kind of where it lies. Um, I think we mentioned before uh, beginning the year with a certain amount of grace. You know, I, I mentioned this actually at my finalist day at the Galvin. Uh, where, where folks mentioned, you know, frustrations with students continuing to, to um, carry phones. I said, you know, I don't assume ill intent on a young teenager's part if they reflexively reach for a phone because I do it myself far more than I would like and I, I don't think that they necessarily mean harm. They're certainly not trying to be rebellious in all cases and so especially coming off the summer, I think we want to make sure that we are clear and consistent but also even toned and, yeah. and making sure that everybody is sort of singing the same song and, and we make sure we give the kids a chance to absorb the policy uh, before we we start you know, using the tools at our disposal discipline-wise. Terrific. Other questions, sure. comments? Um, I, I appreciated in the away for the day policy where it specifically noted the locker or their backpack. Because mm -hmm. uh, I know it's, it's one of the things that my daughter's mentioned before. She wants to have her phone on her, you know, it, in case there were ever a scenario she wants to have access to it. But I like the idea that there is a protocol in the morning where they get to class and they physically turn it off. Um, you, there is no substitute for it not flickering on when you hit that button, right? Right. Um, so thank you for that. I am curious about detention. And I... I didn't think about it with the high school one, but I think of high schoolers as more independent. But keeping a middle schooler after class, after school, influences their ability to get home. If there's a late bus, great. If there's not, how does that physically play out in a middle school environment? Do we use detention? It's a good question. I'm going to defer to Mr. Gibson for what it has looked like in the past, and then I may offer some thoughts about going forward, if that's okay. So what we do is we try to use lunch detention as much as possible because we understand that and when we do assign a detention we do assign it when there's a late bus okay. uh, we do it monday wednesday thursday uh, mr splain and i have talked about this in the past so we make sure that the students get home we would keep them we've had more lunch detentions than after school detentions and um when we did have the, we would keep them and the, the, the kids would get picked up from the library area, so we would make sure that we kept them until like 3 o'clock, and then we'd send them up so that they're on time for the bus. So we haven't had any issues, uh, to my knowledge, with the kids having an issue with transportation if they were assigned to detention. Okay. Thank you. And just as a general um, thought on that, and I understand, you know, sixth graders, they're still very little and and it seems it can seem distasteful the idea of keeping them for detention however um 
if it's done as part of an overall restorative model, it can actually have uh, great benefits for students. Sometimes um, you find that a student who continues to step outside of the, the bounds of, of what the Code of Conduct says really do need a little bit of attention. And sometimes um, if you can incorporate a service element or a reflective element into that detention period, uh, they'll find that they either have a chance to have an audience, you know, one-on-one -on -one with somebody they might not have a conversation with otherwise, or, you know, if it, if it came to something along the lines of doing damage to the physical facility and then having to go around and do some, some service work with the custodial staff, it sort of reinforces that, oh, people do work hard to maintain this facility so that it's nice for everybody and, and you know, um, there's an educative component to it. So. I think it can have value um, if, it's, if it's thoughtfully designed. Thank you for that clarification, too. I mean, my mind runs to, you know, the, what, 11 or 12-year-old who has so much energy mm -hmm. and locking them in the library isn't necessarily going to fix what's going wrong. Uh, so that clarification is very helpful. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Welcome, Mr. Gibson, as well. Thank you. So I'm going to... Uh, circle back to the away oh, for the day and again putting a longer view on it we've had this policy so what is different about this iteration well how did it look in the past so I think um, one of the things that I've been thinking about is that if we work as a community where we get the parents involved and they're on board I think that's a big thing we can talk about it as administrators as teachers if we get the message out as early as tomorrow hey when we come back in August, this is how it's going to be. We need your input. We need your support because we need to address that. This does affect learning. This does affect teaching. And so I think um, we got to be consistent from day one. Um, we can't, you know, let things slide. But we need the. I think we need the family support. Um, if there's a way where we can communicate that consistency weekly, hey, this is how it's going. Um, we're doing a good job with that. We appreciate your support in having the conversations at home with your children. I think that's going to make a big difference. I think so, that'll help out. So I would just want to circle back to something Ms. Miranda said about um, you know student, use of student devices. You know, we're seeing more and more school systems going to I think they call them cell hotels, where in the classroom there are spots where kids put their phone away for the. It's not physically on their person. It's still in the building, so if something happens, they have access to it. Um, but it gets them physically off their person, so the, the buzzing, the ringing, the dinging, the whatever is for that period of time, they are not dealing with it. And um, I, I, I was struck by hearing that at kids camp, the rule was no phones, and the kids did it. And they, they like that high expectation was set, and the kids did it. I think that's awesome. So how can we you know, really make it clear that the phones need to be away because I, I would I mean we in tying back to discipline we know there's a discipline issue with kids using phones during the day in the bathrooms posting things they shouldn't be posting so when does it become a time in which this is the school saying we we're going to take it you know we want them away really for the, again it's uh, it's off their person and I have to believe that students if you gave them truth serum would be relieved to have that decision taken away from them, so to speak, in the sense of, I don't have to deal with it because the, the teacher or the administrator or the school district saying, you know what, we have decided we want you guys to focus on being present, you know, being present in the moment, in the classroom, with the teacher, with your students, um, with the material. So, you know, so that's what I'm saying. I mean, we've had it. 
Um, I would like to see it be stronger. I, I really would like us to see, as a district, we say, you know, we believe in our, we believe our kids can do this. We believe they can learn how to learn without um, having to have a device with them. And sort of taking, you know, I almost think it's understood because it's a burden. They've, they've got that thing, it's, it's on them, it's, it's always there. Can we help them with that burden so they can relearn learning and how to be present? So that really is my, my question and my challenge. Are you thinking that they don't bring it with them at all? No. Nope. Or that it's just it's in, away? Like okay. Once, it, once they hit the classroom, there is a spot for it. That's the expectation. Put them away. So just to Ms. Gallagher's point, it, if, if, this, if kids are stressed that they might be away, it's still physically in there. It's, it's there, but it's not on them. I love what you're saying about them being relieved mm -hmm. because it's true. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. When we take it away, they and they stop arguing. Mm -hmm. There's a lightness of being <laughs> that finally starts to come out. Um, I leave my phone in the other room all of the time. Mm -hmm. That would be my only concern about physically having them put it somewhere. Is they're going to go to the next class, the next place? And but if it's right by the door, it's on the door. I mean, I think there's ways we can all learn how to do it and make it work. I'm interested in ways to make it part of their routine, that the phone is not an option. Yes. Um, so, Ms. Moran, I hear you on the, the cell hotel idea, and it, I would never rule it out, obviously. Uh, again, I haven't seen any of it in practice yet, but we are going to take some cracks at some different approaches without that, and I'll, I'll tell you why. At first blush, cell hotel seems like a really easy solution. However, there's a lot of variability that goes into it as well. So, for instance, the kids don't remember to turn off the phone or the ringer is still on, and then you're halfway through the class and the hotel is on this side of the room and two phones ring or buzz or somebody gets an Instagram story sent to them and that, and then the kid has to get up in the middle of the class and go turn it off. It, it can sometimes derail progress more than the kids actually having it near them. Um, but to your, your point... Um, what is really important, especially in middle school, is the establishment of routines. And this is going to be a, a point of emphasis when I first meet with the staff. Uh, we did a lot of work at my previous school on um, executive functioning skill building. And one of the key components of that was establishing a start of period and end of period routine. We called it first five and final two. The time periods themselves are less important than the idea that you start with certain expectations every day and toward the end of the class, you have certain expectations. And within that first five, it's a really good opportunity for the teacher to say, um, okay, phone's off, away, in your bag now. We had all kinds of problems at my previous school where we had the general policy that there were no phones, but if you walked around the corridor, you would see the kids pull them out. Where we never had problems was when we were starting a test or an MCAS session where whoever was in charge of the room said, if you have your phone, take it out, turn it off, and put it away now. And no, there was no problem. The kids followed it and never had an issue in 10 years during MCAS with a phone going off or a kid trying to text somebody else. So being intentional and being consistent, I think, is, is the real key. Um, and then the, it becomes something they don't even think about after a while. That's the goal. that the opportunity for use in the bathrooms um, you know that's why I originally thought okay the self hotel is a great idea but possibly also just not traveling to the bathroom with backpacks um, that that is one of the challenges too is just figuring that out so good luck 
Um, but really, in, inside the classroom, we want them focused as much as possible and hopefully not taking breaks just so they can go check their messages. Um, we do appreciate your time. And we, oh, yes, yeah, sorry. So, quick thing, just in terms of the um, a policy, um, sorry, attendance, uh, to align with the high school in, in being very specific, do we have a specific tardy time? I see a specific absence time. I don't see a specific charge time. So if it's more than... No, we don't have a specific charge time. Okay. Um, but generally, we start to get, I would say, nervous around 8.30, but it's not a designated time. So I'm wondering for clarity's so expectations. Everyone's on the same page. You know if you're you know, rolling at 8.32 or something, the child is tardy versus... So, again, that would be, again, just to be consistent. Mm -hmm. um, the, the thing that I, I really was surprised at was um, the student delivery under safety and security. Yes. Um, I, nobody should be getting deliveries at school. I mean, am I missing something? <laughs> at DoorDash and food? Yeah, yeah. Because if you flip into our code of conduct, they're not supposed to be ordering food at school or delivered to school. We had, to my knowledge, one particular student that um, was getting food delivered. We, I actually spoke to the parent about that, about the distraction of it, and then it stopped. Um, at some point, I guess the parent thought it was okay. Nobody notified the parent that it was a problem, but then when we, I addressed it with the parent, it did stop. It shouldn't, shouldn't have, this is, to my knowledge, it was one student. Okay, so do we need, is it, are we at the point that we need to have to say in our handbooks at the middle school and the high school, you cannot order food to be delivered to school, whether it's your student or a parent? I mean, I mean, there's food available. We know it's free for another year. So do we need to explicitly state that, that even a parent can't be ordering food for their kid? Candidly, Ms. Murray and I shared your surprise when I saw that language in the handbook. Um, it, again, preceded my, my arrival on the scene, so to speak. There is... I, I will point out there's a distinction. Students are not allowed to order their own Uber Eats or DoorDash. That's, that's the code of, the con code of conduct piece. What this policy clarifies is that if a parent chooses to send a delivery to their student, the student may not pick it up him or herself uh, from any other point. It must be delivered to the main office. That was what was established in the spring. I think that is an element of our handbook that will be under review, it's safe to say. The main office by school personnel. Right. Our our front office staff have jobs to do, not acting as concierges. Mm -hmm. So I mean, that to me is like a no go. Mm -hmm. Like that should be gone. And and then put signs on the door, DoorDash, Grubhub. You can't come in. Like you, no way. You know, turn around, take it back, have it for lunch. But no. That was certainly my experience at my prior yeah. stop, and I um, I I promise you it will be under review this year. Are there any situations where that? I can't. I can't. Is, I can't I mean, think of any. Free lunch. We have. We I know. Are serving free lunch. I, no, because I agree with you. No I'm just reason. trying to look at the other side. Like, is there possibly no. any situation? Because what I'm afraid of is a parent realizes that they didn't shop. Food isn't available. Free lunch. They free didn't lunch. have free lunch. free lunch. That they yes. That they instead choose to have delivery and I completely agree that's not what the staff no. or the no. administration is all should not be nope. using any time doing that.
terrific. Um, and since we are just, just a little bit in the weeds, I have one more question because it actually goes across the board and it's really more for the elementary schools, I think, but it might apply to the middle school, I'm not sure. Um, device charging. So I, I know through experience more with the, the younger kids that there have been consequences, pretty steep ones, for coming to school without devices charged and meaning specifically the laptops, Chromebooks, everybody's got them. And that can be, and I, I get it, and we, it, I, we, need our, we need the kids ready to learn. So I'm just wondering um, if there have been discussions at any of the levels about either making sure that there, there's the capacity to, number one, charge in school, or if we, we feel it is um, something that needs to be communicated more um, consistently to the parents, or how to place the responsibility on students um, when it comes to having these devices charged. I mean, this is like loss of recess generally is the consequence, so it's different at the Galvin, I would assume, but I'm wondering how it's working at the Galvin and just in general if it ends up, if it should end up in the, the manual somewhere. I think overall the students do come to school prepared with a fully charged device. Um, in some cases we provide a charger with, for the student, so the percentage is small, which gives us access to say here. Here's one, but make sure I get it back. Teachers do a great job saying here, or calling our, our tech person and saying here, uh, but I need this back at the end of the class. And the kids are pretty responsible with that. So, an expectation of a student. And just a, another thought too, if that's what we need them to do. No, it's, it's a good point, and I think it should be spelled out. Uh, it's important now that one-to-one -one is sort of the standard model. Uh, I think it's important to spell out what the expectations are. Yeah, no, I'm asking all of you what's reasonable in terms of discipline. I have no idea. I'm wondering if it, um, just in thinking about all the different sides, so a kid forgets a charger, maybe they chronically or forget to charge it. That's right. the other thing. That's, sure. That's what the sure. So that's a problem, but it sounds like it's not a huge problem. Not a huge problem. If we put that in the handbook. Are we now assigning repercussions to something that's not really a big problem? Oh, I'm, right I'm now. actually talking about just the expectation itself that the, the devices need to come charged, just along with all the other conduct. If it is expectation that you are to charge it at home, and then decide if there should be consequences or not. So it, know. it would introduce consequences, doesn't it? It doesn't have to. I, I'm just it, saying that. Then consider that. Do is this something that has a consequence or is it not? So it's consistent in an application because there have been consequences that I'm aware of. Yeah, I, it's it's tricky because I've always been hesitant to take punitive measures against forgetfulness because some people just are, um, and I, I think that's sort of counterintuitive to what if we want to be a welcoming place, you know, I, I think it's it's counter to that. But at the same time, I do think if a kid chronically is coming in with, with an uncharged device, excuse me, I think it's appropriate to loop the family in and have a conversation about what the what the disconnect might be, no pun intended, um, and, uh, and then we go from there. We try to engineer a solution uh, that way. That, that's always my preference, you know, to, to have an open conversation and, you know, if it comes to, if, it, if the student needs some time in the morning, you know, the, for whatever reason, they don't have access at home to something that's critical or it could be anything. And so you want to have that conversation and make sure that you're being proactive before you get to a, a punitive stage. All these signs of the times. Oh, yes. New things to think about. DoorDash and device charging the day and sell hotels. Okay. I have two more. Oh, yes. I'll, I'll keep them very quick. One, I think, is just the yes or no. 
Is there any change in students being allowed to bring their backpacks with their um, belongings from class to class? Not yet. No, not, um, not yet. No, not at all. Okay. But that is something we're going to look at uh, through the year. I know uh, that was another um, decision that was made, and I, I know it was grounded in, in a rationale that addressed the need. I know that the students. Uh, don't need to travel particularly far most of the day. Uh, most of their classes are grouped nearby, uh, and so I think part of the rationale is take what you need for the next three blocks, um, and and you know, then you don't have to worry about a locker visit. It cuts down on congestion in the hallways, things like that. Um, so there there is a rationale to it. At the same time, I can see an argument where if we want to have a routine where we say put the phone out of sight, it's nice for them to have a bag to put the phone out of sight. So we'll, we'll examine that and we'll see how it works. My one last question, I'm sorry to go back to this, but what's the possibility that we can take out that DoorDash section now? Is there none? None? I'm, I'm afraid of the precedent this is going to set yeah. to over one year yep. and I'd, have to reverse it. Yep. I'd be... So yeah. the, the, the one thing that's happening here is Mr. Fogel is uh, tracking all of the, the comments and actions. Um, and the point of a first read and a second read is okay. we can make some adjustments okay. uh, prior to the start of the year. So I'm sure he has noted that. Thank you. He's going to be a thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. So you're good, yeah. Mr. Mulhern. You'll okay. have all less staff to Okay. 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 Very good. Perfect. Thank yes, you. Yes, no yes. problem. <laughs> Okay. All right, thank you all. Thank you and welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So our next folks uh, that we're inviting to the podium is our elementary principals, Principal Broniger and Principal Watson. got about another hour to go here somewhere. <laughs> um, no, in all seriousness, good evening and thank you for the opportunity to, to be here to present uh, the updates to the elementary handbook um, for the upcoming school year. Um, and as Mr. Follin alluded to uh, earlier, um, thanks to some really uh, good, solid, and strong collaboration, um, for the first time we're merging the three individual handbooks into one elementary handbook that will be shared with all the families at the Loose, the JFK, and the Hanson schools. Um, and certainly, you know, we recognize that each building is unique and has its own identities and celebrations. And so there's definitely parts where we want to make sure that we honor those, those pieces. Um, but at the same time, we also recognize the importance of um, really aligning our three schools um, in common procedures and practices um, that support high level uh, and similar student experiences and expectations. So um, that was a piece that was really important to us. Uh, Mrs. Rooney uh, was huge in helping to bring this together. Um, as well as Mrs. Shore, so, um, and obviously the principals and, and a lot of other folks that I'm probably not naming by name, but um, it was a big undertaking and I think we're all really pleased with the, the product that we're putting forth. So, um, while the, much uh, does remain similar to previous years, um, there are a, a few important areas that we would like to highlight um, where updates have been made. Um, and that first uh, section is on page 11 and it's under the special section uh, where you will notice that the library special, um, it's been renamed Library and Digital Learning. Uh, this special has been extended to 45 minutes this year to be uh, similar and in line with the other specials blocks at the elementary level. Um, and it's going to include some time that's spent with the digital learning specialist as well as the library aid um, to engage in learning topics and skills that are part of the Massachusetts digital learning uh, and computer science standards. 
Um, students are still going to have opportunities to have traditional library experiences, to come in and check out books. Um, but we're also really excited as we sort of begin to shift uh, this, this block in particular um, into really more of a modern and 21st century experience for our students. Um, our next major update uh, falls under the attendance category. I know we spent uh, a lot of time with, with previous principal uh, comments discussing that. Um, but that section in our handbook is on page 12, or it begins on that page, rather. Um, and while our attendance philosophy has not necessarily changed, um, we did want to better align our practices across the three schools uh, when, student, uh, when students are chronically absent. Um, so each of the principals, we worked really closely with our homeschool interventionist, uh, Mrs. DeMasi, uh, to determine uh, the process for notifi uh, notifying families around um, issues related to absence. And as we stated in our handbook, we really wanted to sort of define that and, and what it looks like for families. Um, so we decided that after three, uh, what we deemed to be unexcused absences, uh, is that we would be uh, sending a letter home to families at that point. Um, after five absences, we would offer a partnership meeting with uh, school administration and our homeschool interventionist. Um, and if that uh, did not necessarily help to um, get the student more present in school for, for issues that were other than uh, what we know to be health-related issues. Um, we did want to explicitly state as well that we may notify uh, DCF um, or file a child requiring assistance with the Dedham Family Court. And I think what's really important, and I think we want to make sure we, we state this really clearly, uh, it sounds, when you say it that way, maybe harsh uh, or possibly punitive, but it's really meant to be um, just good, open collaboration between school and family. Um, we're very problem-solving focused. We are um, interested in, in hearing the perspectives of families um, and if there's ways that we can help support students to attend school more regularly that is really important to us and we've had some great success um, utilizing some of those uh, agencies to help students better attend school or help families get some support to allow uh, students to do that so um, we wanted to make sure that we explicitly stated that in our handbook um, our next update it begins on page 16 and again this is uh, something we spent a great deal of time already talking about with uh, previous presentations but it's under the code of conduct uh, section um, and our code of conduct uh, it, again it has dual purpose uh, we really wanted to very clearly try to outline expectations um, really around maintaining positive relationships um, and upholding the idea of good citizenship uh, within the elementary school communities um, we wanted to establish accountability for students who do fail uh, at times to act safe and respectful or be responsible community members. And, you know, I think especially at the elementary level, I know we've talked about this in, in previous times that I've had the opportunity to, to come and speak. Um, you know, we really recognize that uh, our code of conduct should promote opportunities for learning and growth for students. Um, you know, we want them to be able to accept responsibility. Um, we want them to be able to engage uh, when mistakes are made with those that are impacted. Um, and we want them to help develop skills and a plan that will help them avoid um, running into similar uh, struggles in the future. You know, everything is a learning uh, opportunity. Sometimes uh, punitive consequences have to be assigned to particular behaviors if the code of conduct is broken. But I think it's really about, and, and again, I know we've talked a lot about restorative uh, accountability and restorative practice. Um, we really value that opportunity to, to work with students and families um, to repair harm and help everybody to move forward and, and have successful relationships, um, you know, before things happen, but also maintain uh, good, healthy, and, and if we can get there, even stronger relationships after harm is done. Um, the final major update that I'm going to highlight is under the, the section titled School Attire, and that begins on page 26. Um, and I think what 
one thing we noticed and, and felt was really, really important uh, is we wanted to remove language um, in our previous dress code uh, that appeared to be gender specific. Um, we definitely had some outdated um, language present um, that, that, you know, I think we wanted to be more um, inclusive and, and certainly recognizing that it's a, uh, we want our, our school attire to be appropriate for all. So we really worked to uh, sort of combine this and, and pair it with the Massachusetts general law. Um, again, which just states that students are expected to dress in a manner that conforms to reasonable standards of health, safety, and cleanliness, um, and that does not cause disruption to the educational process. Um, and we also made sure we wanted to provide some specific examples in our handbook um, of clothing or dress that may not meet these standards, and that includes anything that could be excessively revealing, um, impedes the immediate identification of a student, or contains profane words or images. We wanted to specifically state some, some examples where we might have to have conversations with students about um, the, the attire. Um, and as Principal Mulhern mentioned, you know, attire and accessories that are related to religious purposes um, are certainly appropriate and, and um, you know, accepted. Um, so those are sort of the, the quick uh, major updates to our handbook. Um, I think Principal Watson and myself, we're happy to answer any questions if you have them. Terrific. Thank you. Um, uh, are you, and you're together presenting, so thank you both and welcome. <laughs> uh, and now that I know that Mr. Fogel is taking notes, and this is my chance because I will not get to be here next week, I want to just say a couple more thoughts that I have, questions and thoughts. But generally, um, this is fantastic. I'm glad to see that we've got um, a concerted and thoughtful move toward consolidating handbook for all the elementary schools. Why not have consistency? So that is fantastic. Um, I think uh, in the very same way that uh, there, there may be uh, some more to learn, even from the very good work of what the, the folks um, who helped sort of research and define what, what good absence policy looks like, their definition that they had in there about what excused absence, what constitutes an excused absence so might help also if we apply that through the handbooks because why not learn it and then reinforce it throughout all the um, different grades if we are in fact um, believing that applies throughout the district. So that's one. Um, I, I really like the idea that the, the histories of the schools have been added. That's fantastic. I hope that we could do that for the Galvin as well. Um, and I think uh, it seems like there is an opportunity, maybe not here, but in the, if, you, if you're doing an orient, so there's a third piece to this puzzle, which is the school overview, which is really specific, I think, to each school and the culture and so forth. Some, but somewhere in there, but maybe it's here, um, in each of the handbooks, something to do with the, the educational philosophy, like what the, the goal is. Um, of education in elementary or in the, in the Galvin or you know and maybe at the high school level something that helps parents know what really is the purpose because they're different between the grade levels um, I think uh, the the idea of listing uh, the various staff um, whether it's in the handbooks or it ends up in these orientation packets is great maybe there's a little bit of a um, piece of prompting some language that, that gets parents to understand that's who to call. <laughs> because sometimes it's really hard to understand the difference between the role of, say, school committee or the superintendent or the principal or the team chair or the, or the um, I don't know, 
school resource officer. There's so many different folks, and sometimes parents don't follow necessarily the chain of command because they don't know what it is. And so that, that might be a pain, not a pain point, but an area of great um, empowerment for parents, too, to know, to sort of go to the source um, and the right source that could be most helpful in, in solving their challenge. So it's just a general comment. Thank you both for receiving it, but it's <laughs> overall... Um, I was thinking the updated language from the high school about PE um, and being excused from having to participate if you had a concussion would apply through all of these. And I think your inclusion of volunteering is really important and it probably should be repeated in the others if we're looking to help promote volunteering in our schools. We start in this in this handbook with the caps, but in fact, you can also be on the DEI council. I think you can be on your um, school your school council. You could be a room parent and not part of caps. So maybe even just the volunteerism paragraph moves up, and then the, the different ways. Just again to have people know that there are all sorts of ways they can be engaged. When I say it to you, um, to you both, but really that applies to the boosters or whatever other organizations we have if, if this is the place to capture it. And then finally, um, I did note it, and again, this is a quick read, um, and I super appreciate everything that's here and thought. In, at least in the high school, and I can't remember in the Galvin, but I, I really did like the addition of the language around ability to pay and that no student would be denied the ability to go on a field trip. And so here I think we would probably benefit from that too. Hope I wasn't speaking too fast, but just in case we're, there's a there's a board of considerations <laughs> for now or the future. Other comments or thoughts? I have something sure. just very quick, um, and it goes with the volunteering section for CAPT, DEI, anything like that. If it can just list what the acronym stands for for any of those, because I know we've we've gone that way of mm -hmm. trying to make things easier and readable for anyone that's reading it that may not know ahead of time. Thank you so much. Uh, I love uh, the reframing and the philosophy on attendance. I think that the way that this is spelled out in the handbook really focuses on the importance of having the students in their seats every day. Um, cause I, I mean, it is, anyway, uh, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. What time is it? <laughs> anyway, I noticed just wondering about the mechanics. If a parent calls their student out, the next bullet says, in all cases relative to absence, a note of explanation from the parent must be sent in the day after. Are both required? Past practice, no. I think one of the things that, um, you know, I think that we're hoping to, and I'll speak as, as myself, um, I think we're, we're, we're looking to have the documentation that supports it, not to be a hassle for families, but I think sometimes, um, it just allows us to have a much clearer picture of, of why a student may or may not be present. Sometimes we'll get phone calls and it's a quick little bit so-and-so is out, but we don't have the full story behind it that might help us better understand it or, or the best way to approach it to try to help the student re-enter. Um, so I think when notes can be accessible um, and, and shared, I think that that's something that we're really going to try to ask for. Um, again, we don't want to cause undue stress for families or ask anybody to share information that, that is sensitive or private, but I think that's, that's I think where we're hoping to be able to get a little bit more 
um, of that to help us better understand the absence. And it allows us to have really good partnership meetings as well, if we have some of that documentation. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I fully support that idea. Can I make a suggestion? Absolutely. Uh, some parents are definitely more digital than analog. Um, you know, even having a space where they can go and fill out a form, it might help you track it against the student and help them ensure they've done it. So as I'm looking through, and this is a first read, so I haven't compared it to the others yet, but I noticed the language around restorative accountability as something that is separate from traditional progressive accountability practices. And I was connecting to the idea of progressive accountability under the restorative as though that were part of the same model. <laughs> and it sounds like it's not part of the same model. Can you share a little bit more detail around that? Sure. Um, I'm happy to jump yeah. in. I, I didn't <laughs> want to dominate the floor, okay. but um, <laughs> uh, so I, I think they're they're similar. Um, and, and in full transparency, that that is uh, definitely some language we looked at um, and sort of worked and and I don't want to say stole because that has maybe a negative connotation, but. Oh, I'm sorry, yep. Um, but we, we definitely wanted to have some consistency with some of the language that was included in the high school uh, specifically. Um, so I think the way that, that uh, I would sort of delineate the two um, is the accountability piece is more sort of the, the student and the family and how do we work with that. And then the progressive, um, I forget the, the word that you said there, but that's sort of more like the here's the, the things that could could happen and trigger next steps. So you might start with a, a really quick, nice, simple parent conversation. And then you may progress sort of down the line as things, you know, um, dictate. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but it does. It's okay. Good. Yeah, we're good. Um, thank you so much for putting them all together on the same. I think that it really does help to make more of a community out of the three schools. And great work on the uh, dress code. Thank you. Thank you. Just a couple of quick things. Good evening. Um, Again, a tardy question, just, just to get everyone on the same page, is it a good idea to put in a, a tardy time? For one school, it could be 8.32, another school might have a 15-minute window, so I would recommend looking at that in terms of just some consistency so parents all have a, the same idea of what tardiness is. May I ask a, a clarifying question? When, oh, you, sure. when you say tardy, are you referring to um, the time that a student would be considered tardy to school or the time that the school office may want to contact a family oh, to see. Page 13, any student who arrives after the start of school should be checked into the main office by an adult. Okay. So just clarifying after, you know, whatever. So just, just so everyone's clear. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I will, oh, as far as the, um, the volunteering piece, same thing I would encourage spelling out what CAPT is, because that's one of parent volunteers' biggest challenges. No one knows. If you say it's a PTA, oh, I get that. Um, I would also encourage including links to the CAP sites within this document, so parents can go right to you know each of the each of the CAP um, websites. And the last thing I will ask is the same thing around how, because especially the elementary, how is this restorative practice going to work? Because my concern is it does does it land starting with the elementary teacher? How would it work differently? Because again, you don't have the diff, you have different administration, so I'd be curious how it does work uh, at the elementary level. Um. I think that ultimately it starts in the classroom, this work. Um, part of what 
the training for restorative justice and restorative practices about building community in your classroom. Um, so we will be working with our staff to establish those sort of routines in the first six weeks of school, let's say. And so we're working on how are you a student, how do you... Um, how are you acting in the classroom? How are you responding to your peers? So if something is happening in the classroom, the teachers can address it um, in the moment. However, it is appropriate. It's pulling one or two students aside, having a group meeting about it. Um, and I think we are sort of trying to, or I'm trying to look at it as a tier one, tier two, and tier three intervention. So with the tier one intervention, it's in the classroom. Um, the classroom teachers are working with the students. And then as um, situations arise, and as behavior sort of continues to happen, um, we might move to the next tier. And so that could be somebody outside of the classroom that is facilitating um, a conversation with students or a group. Um, and then if it is a, something that's continuing, maybe then it's now a tier three. And so you might be seeing the, um, the principal or you might be seeing the counselor. Um, but I think that, you know, this is new to us as a district. I think some people have had more experience than others, and so I think our first step was to think about at the building level how we can introduce this to the teachers and give them ownership of this practice as well, um, because we want them to be able to use that um, it, with the students, because we want the students to see this is your community. Your classroom is your community, and we want you to be successful in that community and all the people there to help you. Does that answer your question? Yeah, so it's yeah. similar to what Ms. Burns was saying earlier. So again, especially at the elementary level, how do teachers know when, okay, I, I need to you know, move it upstairs, if you will. So what I, is what would be the process? Yeah. I think it's hard to say like X, Y, and Z mm -hmm. gets you there, but I think it's a conversation with the class, with the the school community around sort of what are we seeing in our buildings? Um, how have we in the past intervened? And um, how can we move forward in this practice that we're saying that we're going to use as a district? Um, and so I think it's a definitely a learning process for us. But I think what I think is important for the teachers to hear is that they're doing a lot of this in the classroom already. They might not have a name for it. And as we talk about social emotional learning, this is the conversation that we have. So I think that's not 100% totally new for everybody, but I think as we start talking about it, teachers are gonna say, oh right, I do do this. We're just giving a name to it in some places. So I'm just curious, at some point maybe, halfway point in the year, as, as this has really come to uh, more fruition, a report back, just some sense of how it works then, once they've actually had a chance to put it in place? Because I'm just thinking about what you were saying earlier about how to call, when to call, who to call, how, how, are, those in, how are those protocols or how are those... Um, Can I just jump in? Sure. You're going hear me okay? Really what you're talking about is the, the idea of the MTSS structure of it, right? And really articulating what we need at each level is to say, these are the things, now we could call it physical aggression, right? But like, you almost need to define that for teachers and staff, even, you know, at the elementary level, like I mentioned, whether that's kindergarten, aggression in kindergarten is very different than aggression with fourth or fifth grade. And so you kind of have to give some examples and non-examples. And that's the work where we're, we're sort of, each building I think had identified that and, and Mr. Roniger, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of that I think we, we, we've come away from some of that 
concrete central language post-COVID and kind of taking the restorative justice piece where they're mentioning this being a three to five year culture shift, part of that work is going to align with all of those other initiatives that we have. So MTSS is academic, it's social emotional, it's also behavioral expectations. And so really having that opportunity to take this and look at it with staff and say, you know, this is an example of that. And this is probably not an example of that. And, and really also doing that work with our students because the students need to have that same level of understanding so that my expectations with this teacher and then I go to, you know, PE or library and the expectations are the same. But that is a lot of the, it's the vocabulary piece and the common understanding that I think is going to come out of the building work as we start to take a look at some of these things. Educated, um, everyone has, is sort of has a, has a common understanding, so that everyone um, kind of knows the rules of the game, if you will. So that would just Can be I? I'd love to build on that. Um, in terms of coming back, this is the first time I've really heard that there's another side to this restorative justice about the proactive community building. That sounds amazing. It seems like that activity is really what's going to help bring people together. Um, that's something that's going to help incidents of bullying. People are actually going to understand what's going on, and uh, I would love if you do are able to come back and share some of, you know, the insights or retrospective on the work that's been done. I'd love to hear that side of it as well. Absolutely, and we're only in like the very early, early phases, right? I mean, literally, there was training in July, training. Uh, we had the one larger one in June, and then the sessions uh, today and tomorrow, I believe, right? I think um, so. Absolutely, and I think some of the, you know if we got to the, where we would say, like, how do you know that we did this and we did this well, right? Hopefully your kids are coming home and they're talking about community circles and responding to one another. And so, um, you know, I definitely think there's going to be a lot of work to do to really celebrate how this looks and how it works and how people can get excited about it. I'm so, excited. yeah. that is probably embedded in all of it, and I do think it's an action item to, to find out and monitor how we're doing, is inherent in that is how much support do our classroom teachers have to be able to take this on while also teaching. And so the, the tiered system is also how, when can they ask for help, you know, to make sure it's done right, but also not distract from, um, you know, the, the work that they're trying to do in the classroom. So that's, a, you may not have the answer yet, but that's something we're interested in is how do we make sure that we have enough resources available and We are too, 100% we are too. And I don't really think that any of these things that we're talking about are an add-on. It's more like good instructional design has elements that are engaging for kids, establish behavioral expectations, have sort of those natural course corrections, opportunities to move frequent opportunities for kids to respond. All of those things have to happen at the same time. And so it really, when, you, when you're doing all of those elements well, the need for external interventions, right, or more, um, you know, whether it's administrative support or somebody like that coming in should be reduced in that it is manageable with, you know, the folks that you have. And I feel like um, we're, we're definitely getting to a place where I think we're going to start to see some of these things pay off in those dividends where we can more effectively target, okay, we're actually now seeing this trend because we're not looking at it as this big, like, oh, recess is a problem. Well, actually, no, it's just second grade recess. And, and how can we provide some more targeted support to that specific group of students and maybe do some proactive teaching before they go out and, and really look at it from that perspective? about um, the, the philosophy. I noticed in the um, elementary books, in the elementary handbooks, 
the option for detention is removed, which is great. Um, it's different than the other handbooks. I'm wondering about the philosophy when it comes to restorative um, accountability or restorative practices, um, if the philosophy about detention being um, developmentally appropriate uh, is one of the reasons why it's removed. And then what the full, and this is the hottest, I'm gonna tell you topic, repeated question of parents have, is with the how does the loss of recess or physical activity for young children jive with restorative practices? And will we, I mean, that is the consequence that everyone fears most, I'm sure. Maybe aside from a parent phone call home, which would really probably do it. But um, where did you net out in terms of taking detention out, and then, and then of course, like the teacher's secret weapon, loss of recess? Being new to the district and seeing detention in the handbook when we started this process, I brought that up, and it, there's, it's not a practice in elementary school. You know what? Um, you know we sort of came to, so that's why we took it out. Um, we talked a lot about um, consequences have to sort of mimic what happened. Um, so. I think sometimes in the past, recess has been the thing to take away because it's the easiest. Um, and I think what we talked about and what most teachers know is that you don't really get any bang for your buck by taking away from recess because we have elementary students, kids, who need to be moving, um, who need that activity as part of their day. And what we're finding is if you take away um, recess for something they did at 10 o'clock in the morning, there's no correlation. Um, and then that child is could potentially have a really hard afternoon because they don't understand why they got this consequence, there's no correlation, but they've also missed active time. Um, so that was part of, you know, detention was taken out and sort of rethinking about consequences in a different way. Um, and I think that what we really have to do at, at our building level is to talk to teachers about um, when something happens, how do you uh, help a student understand what they did and if there is a consequence, because not every behavior has a consequence attached to it. Um, if there is a consequence attached to it, we have to make sure that it is something that the student will say the next time, I shouldn't do this because here's the consequence and this is how I felt. Does that that's your question. Maybe as this um, rolls out and there's understanding about how it's working and so forth, there'll be opportunity to potentially address that topic specifically um, in the handbooks. I'm not suggesting it get there now because okay. I don't actually know what you know what Which the right answer topic? is. Loss of recess, like how that works. Yeah. I'm 99% sure that the wellness policy restricts the um, removal or uh, punishment or of uh, any physical activity yeah. recess um, as, as a punishment. And, so it, then, and so the opposite, it, you also can't make a kid do 10 push-ups as right. punishment either. Yeah. So, And that's stated in the wellness policy, so we just need to make sure that it's all implemented. align. Yes. Aha! So we, we're okay, aware okay, of that. Okay, that's very popular. Yeah, one of the things are, is the idea of logical consequences mimics or, or addresses and it's done in a, a timely way. Um, having just gone through very closely the wellness policy, there is an element that there is a requirement of that movement. Now, um, if something happens at recess, the logical consequences, they might not be with their peers at that recess, right? But you still have to build in some measure of movement in, in time as well. 
but that's why you know principals make those decisions and um, they know the balance of both movement and what what is the right uh, consequence as well uh, but it is in the wellness policy well, thank you for that clarification and that that's all I'm saying is that not dealing specifically with that topic if, if there is a philosophy on it it, it might be worth it helping to clarify. Okay. Anything else? Thank you. All right. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ms. Barnes. Pre-K. Last but not least, <laughs> the handbook for our youngest learners. So Mrs. Kilday couldn't be with us tonight. And there's very, um, there's very uh, minimal changes to the preschool handbook. But I don't want to minimize the work that um, Mrs. Kilday and her team did. They obviously um, updated the contacts and, and the other uh, protected classes definitions, the class descriptions that they have in the tuition. But the, the main changes that I want to highlight for your review are around the addition of the section on curriculum and holiday celebrations. So the preschool worked uh, very hard to try and articulate or and introduce to families just their philosophy on hands-on learning, their belief in play, the need for exploration, um, and that their preschool curriculum is designed with thematic units that really um, pair with literature that's representative of the students that attend our program. And uh, following that section is a note about holiday celebrations and really using those um, as an opportunity, not necessarily in the traditional sense, um, but rather having students be in their students' individual or specific cultural traditions kind of be highlighted and shared with their peers to really ensure an inclusive opportunity for all students. So those were the two um, big add-ons to the preschool handbook and then um, just outlining the report card structure. At, towards the end on page 16. So uh, I know that Ms. Kilday will be in attendance with us when we have second read. So just kind of wanted to highlight those things because uh, she and her team worked pretty hard on them. Between all the handbooks, I get that. But the, the philosophy on the holiday celebrations is interesting. And when I wonder whether or not that belongs in some of the others or not. I don't know. But, it, you know, to start out by teaching students about um, core values of inclusion, respect, and acceptance, not doing it in one place but then doing it in another, I just don't know if that's a confusing message to the community. So just a thought. Other questions? Comments? Except a big thanks. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Okay. All right. I am cognizant that we have um, um, moved pretty far along um, from the time that we had set to be uh, at public comment and I, I don't know if um, Ms. Wheeler or um, Mr. Marshall or if anybody is aware if we have two public comments this evening or just one but I can see that we have one gentleman in the audience um, for public comment. I know our second request may or may not be waiting on Zoom. I'm not aware. Not. There was one on Zoom. It's it, it still waiting? Uh, we haven't logged it yet. Uh, I can log it now. Yeah, and the, the thing is we, we tried to stick to the time because they were given that time frame, and so I, I want to be able to um, uh, move Take, take a moment to move the item on the agenda so that we are being um, courteous also to our folks who are interested in making comment. And so um, while you're researching... Mm, maybe we should take a five-minute break. <laughs> Is that a thing? <laughs> 
what we could do is research that off camera and then I could I could call our first public commenter who is here in person yeah and then just let me know if, if, if our second commenter Jane, is, I was is say, logged in probably let us know if uh, our participant is is there Okay. Take care of right in person. All right. So, um, if all right. So, um, what I'd like to do is move to item G on the agenda: public comment. Um, and just as a reminder, public comment is an opportunity to, that allows all individuals to express an opinion or share a comment on issues to be discussed that are on the meeting agenda or within the school committee's authority. It's not an, an opportunity for discussion or dialogue between individuals and the school committee or the administration. And in order to respect the time of all participants in the meeting, the totality of the individual comments cannot exceed five minutes. And so that is generally how we, we are running public comment, and it's in accordance with the law and best practice. And so that said. Uh, as the clerk, I will mark the five minute start time. So. Anything else before we begin? All right, well then, yep. um, we, we do have, um, I believe, um, Mr. Adam Mantel uh, here to make a comment. Welcome, Mr. Mantel. The floor is yours. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Adam Antel. I live at 12 Ways Way in Canton. My family has lived here for three years, during which time our children have attended school here. I want to start by saying that I admire some of the educators in our system. In particular, I'm grateful to the faculty at Rodman for the fantastic job they did with my son during the height of the pandemic. However, I have to find fault with other Canton faculty who, in my opinion, have performed hurtfully to my family while working within the boundaries of school policy. I would not be here today if they had completed better work product and corrected their mistakes and operated transparently regarding an incident involving my 10-year-old daughter. Uh, this past March 7th, the bully at school harassed her. This is not the first time the bully did so, nor the last. Nor was it the first time the bully used racial epithets in my daughter's presence. On this day, the bully lured my daughter into doing likewise, whereupon she was reported to Mr. Braunegger, the school principal. No Canton administrator has refuted to me the narrative I have described. About a month later, Diana Mullen, then the Director of Student Services, published a so-called letter of finding which claimed my daughter had violated the bully's civil rights. The letter showed a blatant violation of due process and a lack of quality control. The letter includes untrue statements and irrelevancies, confuses fact and opinion, speculates, and does not identify the harm it claims my daughter caused. It even has punctuation errors. I appealed to Mr. Fullen to withdraw the letter. He referred the appeal to Assistant Superintendent Sarah Shannon. My wife and I met with Ms. Shannon and pointed out the letter's problems. In her subsequent letter rejecting our appeal, Ms. Shannon only addressed a very narrow range of the letter's many flaws, failing like Ms. Mullen before her to identify the harm they claim my daughter caused the child who bullied her. Ms. Mullen's successor, Megan Byrne, has been unwilling to rectify her predecessor's mistakes. I raised this issue before the school council so that common sense can prevail. The notion that a typical 10-year-old child can violate another person's civil rights is ludicrous. For that reason and others I've cited, I ask that the letter of finding in Ms. Shannon's accompanying letter be removed from my daughter's school records. I also ask the council to examine the processes by which civil rights issues are investigated and to explore how they can be improved upon to ensure not only basic legal compliance, but also the transparency, substance, and professionalism that were missing from my own interaction with Canton school administrators. I further request the school council to examine how it can ensure that administrators act with discretion and perspective relative to student conduct. 
For example, on March 25th, Mr. Broniger and Mr. Follin colluded to draft an email notifying the school community of the March 7th event. Mr. Broniger announced their plan to my wife and me. Mr. Broniger acknowledged that publicizing the event could draw additional awareness to my daughter's involvement. I expressed our vehement opposition in a meeting with him and Mr. Follin later in the day, in which Mr. Follin spoke little. Mr. Broniger frequently said, I hear you, a placatory statement that did not address legitimate criticism. No statutory crime was committed on March 7th. Nobody was in physical danger. Yet Mr. Broniger and Mr. Follin were willing to pour gas on the fire of the ostracism my daughter was already facing at school, with which she's still contending. My daughter is 10. The target audience for the notification were adults, among whom Mr. Broniger was attempting to quell discord. Mr. Broniger and Mr. Follin disrespected the privacy of my family and opposed to their problems my daughter in what I consider to be a reckless use of power. Canton administrators should refrain from notifying the community about student conduct that does not pose physical danger or widespread systemic problems. Canton's school administrators have taught a lesson that it's good for young people to distrust authority. Mr. Follin told me that he hates racism, but his administration failed to articulate its effect in a letter reviewing a case of playground taunting. Mr. Broniger could have given my daughter the in-school suspension he ultimately assigned within days of March 7, but he waited until after my family's meeting with Ms. Shannon two months later, long after the value of the punishment was lost. Moreover, he could have refrained from acting against my daughter's welfare with his notification to the school community. I believe in the value of diversity and inclusion. I have marched in protest on behalf of the disadvantaged many times, and I have actively volunteered on diversity initiatives in my place of work. My life experience makes me understand the value of recognizing civil rights. That experience exposes when civil rights are not protected. I also believe uh, the individuals I've mentioned are capable bureaucrats, and I'm confident that they'll conform to appropriate guidance regarding civil rights if the school council provides us some tweaks to existing policy. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I will just say that um, if there is interest in following up with the policy subcommittee to look further into the policies that we have, uh, that is definitely an option. All right. Uh, do we have anyone else? Uh, it looks like we do not. We don't have anybody else on, and I don't believe they got back um, okay. following uh, being provided the link. All right. Thank you very much. We'll follow up with the person. Yeah. Okay, so now we are going to move on to the next item that was on our agenda, which is uh, F2, new business. This is the policy section B, first read. Vice Chair O'Halloran, will you present that to us? Absolutely, my pleasure, thank you. So this has been reviewed um, with our um, leadership of Jim Har Hardy. Um, and also um, Ms. Arboleda, Mr. Fullen, um, Ms. Shannon helped as well on, as part of this. Um, so any, let us know of any questions that you have. I have my notes from our meeting and of course the first read here. Okay, terrific. I will just say that um, section D is one that we have visited as a committee uh, last year and in some other um, contexts. So it's, it's great to know that a, a good deal of it has been reviewed in the past, but uh, some of the areas that you all spent time um, digging into really look like, um, you know, they're, they're changes that, that are substantive, they make sense, and then, of course, I was part of the policy committee at the time, and uh, we did try to update some language to reflect the strategic framework and so forth. And so, anyway, just want to say thank you to everybody involved so far, and um, hopefully the next time this comes around, um, you know, it will 
be able to be approved. But the other thing that's just important, again, because I won't be here, is that when it makes sense and um, changes are made to Section B, which really has to do with the operations and the purview of the school committee and our student um, uh, advisory uh, committee, et cetera, is uh, to take and then just either flag with me or we'll flag in general changes that would then be made to the website because yes. we live this policy. And so that's exactly. the idea is that what, what is stated here is essentially how we operate. And so um, the language that is, you know, on the agenda is coming from our policies. And so just um, as we do um, uh, approve different changes, maybe we could just have an action item to just make sure that if there is anything that either, like I said, I'm willing to do or mm -hmm. we need to do to update our website so that the public's fully aware of it too. It makes sense and it jives with everything we say about ourselves. That's my only request. Absolutely. And just to further what you said, the changes that happened, because I believe it was last summer or yeah. early fall mm -hmm. that we visited policy B before, the B policies before. The benefit that we have now with the guidance of Jim Hardy, as, as with all of our policies, is that we are following what the state requires. And in conformance with the state, obviously, is our main, main thing. Great. Any other questions or comments? Okay. Terrific. All right. And so moving right along, we have item F3. That is our MSBA update. Mr. Folan and Marshall will provide an update. No problem. I'll or step at in. least Mr. Folan to start. Yep, I can, <laughs> I can take care of it. Just quick updates, too. Um, I think we have a recurring agenda item around uh, the documents and deadlines that we have to meet for MSBA. So, two that uh, were part of this is just the um, educational vision. It was really taking what was in the statement of interest and replicating it in their particular form. Uh, and that was some work done between myself, Ms. Shannon, and um, uh, also um, new, our new principal, Mr. Mulhern. So it was a good opportunity to kind of get acclimated with that. So that was um, submitted. The also the the second part, which Mr. Marshall will talk about, is sort of an enrollment analysis, which is a very key aspect. Um, the statement of interest in getting into the MSBA uh, program. Obviously, they want updated information and feasibility. So uh, one thing that they've asked about this is, you know, you submit the document. We have a follow-up meeting that's coming up where they want to engage some folks in the town uh, as well just to ensure um, that, you know, it's something that is accurate. There's projections of what the grade levels will look like. You know, one, one big change for us would be uh, there's the possibility of us moving to a five to eight middle school. So they want to look at the enrollment trends that they're seeing in elementary and, and how this may work out um, and have feasibility with relation to that change in, in grade structure. So uh, that's just a quick update. We, we feel good about where we are and what we're doing. Um, and we are in constant contact with our uh, liaison for M MSBA. She emails us all the time and ensures we stay on track with everything. So that is the update for MSBA. Things are going well. Great. Any other comments or questions? Just so exciting. Yeah. Every step forward. I love step closer. I love when they they you submit something and it's um, good project management. You can tell they're so professional. Thank you for this document. As a reminder, 
this Here's is your next one. one. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, Miss Gomes. <laughs> what have you done for me lately? Okay, so moving on. Item F4, just in time. Uh, we now have an update on our school lunches, and we have Mr. Marshall and Ms. Lawless here to provide an update on the extension of universal free school meals. Good evening. Glad to be back with good news. Uh, so yes, lunches are free for all students <coughs> next year and breakfast. Um, so every student can have one meal a day, breakfast and lunch. And um, this, this year um, we were operating back under the National School Lunch Program. Last year we were under a seamless summer operation. The, one of the differences that um, we'll be looking at this year, because we're back to the National School Lunch Program model, is that we will be um, needing to claim lunches under the various categories, paid, free, and reduced. Um, and with that, the Department of Ed is strongly um, encouraging families to fill out the free and reduced meal application. Um, so that's one of the pieces that I just want to, um, you know, talk about a little bit tonight, that, that it's so important to fill that out. And we have a few ways of reaching families. One of them is that we send the application home with every child the first few days of school. Every child is handed an application. We have the application posted on the website, and this year we're also planning on rolling out an electronic version where families can fill it out right online. And we have the software and programming to pull that information in, um, which is really good. We'll also be running a direct certification this year. Um, we generally do that every month, and we're hoping to pull in probably seven or 800 children um, who will automatically be qualified for free or reduced meals. Um, what else have I got here? Um, and then just talking about the free meals, I just did a quick calculation because it's really important for families, I think, to you know partake of this benefit. And the reimbursement between, between the um, free lunch for breakfast and free lunch benefit would be essentially um, $6 and about 75 cents per student. And over the course of the school year, that, that benefit translates to about $1,100 of value to a family in, in savings if their child participates. So for a family with a few children, they could be looking at several thousand dollars of savings in a year. So it's really, it's really something that is important and we hope we can get as many children to participate in this year. Um, so that is one piece. Um, going into this next school year, we are going to go back to having children put in their PIN numbers on the PIN pad, which we did not do for the last two years um, due to COVID, you know, with feeding in the classroom and other situations. This year they're going to be back to it. And of course, I'm sure that a lot of the kids have forgotten the PIN numbers, and I am suspecting the parents have too. So we're going to do a mailing. Um, it's going to go out um, a week from Monday, this coming Monday. We'll send the PIN numbers home to every household so the parents have it ahead of time. Um, we also were doing um, an expanded menu. I know last year parents were really, you know, wanting to see more options for their children. So this year we're going to be going back to multiple choices in every school 
except for the Rodman Preschool. And we'll have um, at least three non-meat vegetarian options available every day. And the high school and middle school may have, you know, seven or eight choices a day. So we, we've sort of expanded back to where we were pre-COVID, um, which should be good. And hopefully that will bring more children in to participate. Um, we will be having um, free lunch for all children, but adults will be paying for their meals. Um, they're not free. Um, and then in addition to that, we will be going back to selling some a la carte snacks of various types and those will have to be paid for. They're, you know, they're optional. Not every child will partake. If a child wants to purchase a second meal, they will be charged for the second meal. So just a little bit of clarity there for uh, families. Um, there we go. Okay, we're, I think we're right down here now to the, um, the point of seal. We've talked about that. Pin numbers. Um, Menu choices we've covered, um, gluten-free menu. Um, we'll have a gluten-free choice every day for children. And um, something I haven't talked about with you um, before is that we have about 300 children in the district that have um, either medical needs or religious or special dietary needs where they, they need an accommodation. And so, you know, it could be as simple as um, they can't have milk, they could have multiple allergies, they have food sensitivities, and they range the gamut. It's just not the seven major allergens. And so when those children order meals, um, the staff actually will prepare meals specifically for them. And they have to identify who that child is when they come down to the lunch line. We use the POS to help with the identification. We have pop-up notes. Um, but we accommodate children every day and you know we may have in one school 15 to 20 children getting lunch on any given day and, and that's you know it, it, it's a serious matter and it's a you know it's probably the most difficult job for the staff they work really closely with the nursing staff to be sure that the child gets what they need at lunchtime um, but that's something that sort of goes on behind the scenes that people don't think about um, and as we serve more students because meals are free of course we're handling a lot more children with those types of allergies. Um, and so there's a great effort there to just accommodate every child to the best of our ability. Um, I think that I think that may be it um, for what I had to talk about. I don't know if any of you have questions for me. That was just a quick overview of how we're going to do school lunch this year. If I can just jump in and just add and highlight to um, first Martha thank you for being here um, you know she's been on top of this from the very beginning and um, you know this free lunch program this year is very different than last year so there's going to be two revenue sources there's always been two revenue sources federal and state um, but essentially uh, anybody who is um, eligible for a free meal is still going to be, we're going to be reimbursed from the federal side, which that is what really makes it important for families to fill out the um, free and reduced lunch uh, application. Um, and then students um, entering their PIN numbers where it's not just a meal out the door and we're getting reimbursed. And then the state is basically going to make up the difference um, of the cost for any uh, students that typically would be paying. So we're not exactly sure how this is going to look yet. We're not sure how this revenue is going to come in or what the timing is of that reimbursement. So uh, there's still a little bit more to come um, from that standpoint. Uh, 
what Martha shared the last time she was with us, though, was that increase in participation, um, which is fantastic, right? Uh, free meal program, more kids eating, and this is great. But it does put a strain on a program, especially uh, from a personnel standpoint and from a staffing standpoint. And so I'll be working closely with Martha to kind of monitor that as we begin and hopefully we'll start to get some more information to understand if this is going to become a regular uh, program and so we might need to really look if, if we maintain 60 percent participation levels we are going to need to look at our staffing um, from from a food service standpoint so uh, I think that's just something important to look at and then again uh, we will be back to selling snack type items bottled water those types of things those are not free items um, my school bucks is still uh, there for you to fund your account online that's the easiest and best way uh, and so um, you know if you do want your children to partake in, in that kind of program uh, they will need uh, money on account um, just one other thing with the free and reduced meal application um, you know there's the standard application where parents have to put their information in we have two additional um, pieces that we send out they're optional but we do do them and one of them is um, about uh, Medicare if a family is interested in that but um, a bigger one is the sharing information page and families need to fill that out if they want us to share information so if a family is applying for the school bus and they're seeking a waiver they need to give permission for me to share that information or if it's um, a field trip and they're looking for a waiver for that. They need to fill that section out. Um, so it, we have athletics, extracurricular activities, and then the um, pay and ride student transportation there. So that's, even if families are directly certified for free lunch, getting them to fill that application out is important. And of course, the more families that step forward and fill an application out, you know, can translate to a higher percentage of free and reduced children in the district and of course then that can bring more services into the district as Ms. Rooney said tonight with you know the the title one now in all schools we never had that prior to I think not before last year right yeah so you know it's, it's an important um, piece for lots of reasons not just for the free meal um, and if there's going to be more pandemic money this will help families possibly get some of that so it's great news that we'll have those um, resources available. I didn't get to uh, uh, be present for your presentation last time, but I did want to ask a question about either the district's philosophy or the pre or offer or like the prevailing trending wisdom and what what's the story with milk and alternatives to milk. Now, is it water or milk or the, um, the whole beverage option considering well, dietary really. choices um, today? The, the, the Department of Education um, nutrition program has really some specific guidelines. Um, there are five components. You know, the, there's, there's, you know, a protein, there's a grain, there's a fruit, there's a vegetable, and there's milk. And under, you know, the newer regulations, we offer, have offer versus serve in all of the schools except for the Rodman Preschool. And children have the option of selecting either all five choices on a lunch menu or just, you know, three. They have to take a fruit or a vegetable as one of the components. So a child could actually come through a lunch line and take the mashed potatoes, an apple, 
and a piece of bread, and that's a reimbursable meal. Most children don't eat that way, um, but milk is optional in that respect. But we do have to always offer milk, and we have to offer a milk variety, which we do. We will have a skim milk and a 1% milk. We can have a flavored milk, okay? So we're okay in that area. The only time milk would not be um, required as an option for a child is if they have a medically documented allergy or sensitivity that they can't consume milk. And then this should be from the doctor's recommendation um, what that substitute should be, what that substitute beverage should be. If it's an allergy, certainly, you know, lactate milk wouldn't be the, the correct one. If they were lactose intolerant, it could be lactate. Um, but the doctor note should say what the prescribed substitution should be. Um, so. Assuming, so then there's the, the special circumstance with beverage, there's the option to buy some other beverages, but it's, it's, it's generally milk or, your, or water, which sounds it's, it's, reasonable. It's milk or nothing for most children. Um, <laughs> if they want water, they Gotta go have get to it. pay for it. Unless the doctor says that they can have water instead of their milk, then they're given water at no cost. And then for the pre-K programs, there's only um, white milk, no flavored milks. Thank you. That's the milk story. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it. Sure. Other comments from the panel? I just want to say thank you, oh. um, really for being so focused on making it more accessible for families. So when you said you're rolling an electronic version for folks to fill in, mm -hmm. and I think sending the pin pin numbers home is genius because, you know, that there's so, we have so many numbers to keep track of. I think that's awesome, and I, I think sharing with us too. How many children um, have special dietary needs and how the staff are making them really you know, special meals, so to speak? I mean, I think that's such a commitment, and I think mm -hmm. just to know that behind the scenes, how hard we know how hard they work, but to have, have that extra piece of information is great. So that's just amazing. Right. So thank you for letting us know that. You're welcome. It's, you know, something that's changed. Um, when I started here in 2004, the first year I didn't have anybody who needed anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now we have hundreds. Yeah. So we, you know, it's been a, a, a lot of work and a lot of professional development and time and training and confidence with the staff to get them to where they are today. So thank you. I'm thankful for it. I'm going to echo the thanks. Uh, you've been a, such a critical part of the pandemic response for years. Um, my question, uh, well, thank you for explaining, you and Mr. Marshall tonight, about the criticality of filling out that form. Because it is not logical. Lunch is free. Why do I need to fill out the free and reduce lunch form? Um, do you, the way that it's been explained to us here tonight, when that goes home, is there some kind of clarification or explanation or really, we really need you to fill this out? Um, not in the application. That isn't part of the application packet. And the application packet has a, you know, it's 15 pages long. Um, there's a lot of information, but it doesn't talk about the things that I just talked about. But that is going to be communicated to the households. Uh, and I, you know, Mr. Folan and I have a letter that's going out separate from the PIN number letter. Um, I don't know, maybe tomorrow or Monday, I'm not sure yet exactly. That's going to talk a little bit more about that. And as I communicate to families, you know, when I, when I send out 
lunch menus and pin numbers, that information is going to be included as well. Awesome. Um, I mean, it's so critical that the ability to share the information that a family might need some assistance. You don't want a kid not to join a club or an athletics endeavor, any kind of activity because of the finances. Right. So. A lot of times that um, information allows a child to get a waiver or be able to go to a Y camp or, you know, the Canton Recreation in the summer if they qualify. So it, it really opens up a lot of um, opportunities for children that may have been shut out. Thank you. There You're are welcome. other initiatives too, um, internet, um, you know, electric companies, right. gas companies too, that yeah. oftentimes will mm -hmm. run different, um, you know, uh, items throughout the year and being able to just provide that letter um, of, you know, having free or reduced lunch can, can offer other benefits outside of school. Wow. Okay. I was going to mimic the same thing, the importance of that, of people filling that out, and that's wonderful that an email is going to go out. I'm thinking maybe a follow-up email can go out once those forms go home to families too because in the chaos of this season, if it goes out now and a couple weeks later, people start school and get the forms, they may have forgotten. So just we an do. idea. We, we, we do. And, you know, typically um, families, if they haven't completed a new application, they lose their benefits after the first 30 operating days. And generally in a year where they have to pay, I will start um, long before that, you know, emailing families, I, you know, letting them know that the cutoff date is coming. I'll mail applications home to households that still haven't done it. Email them another application. Sometimes I'll email them another application with return postage to me. That's really, awesome. we try a lot of different um, ways to avenues and ways to try to get them to, you know, get the application. And, and sometimes I, I, I have found what works the best often. Um, when I call a family, they're happy to fill it out. It's just that they need the personal call. One more question mm -hmm. about the pin pads. Who is actually entering the numbers? The student. Okay. The student enters the pin pad number, and so they're initiating the sale. Okay. How, I'm thinking in the time of viruses and germs and everything, when we're hypersensitive to that, what is being done to clean the pin pads? We, we can sanitize and wipe them periodically. Uh, the other option would be to use, and we have them as well, we have barcode scanners. Well, we could scan, but the problem with that is the children lose their cards all the time. Um, Can they stick them to, like, their lunchbox? But I thought about that. But if have they have their lunchbox, their lunchbox <laughs> they wouldn't have. That's Can they exactly keep their, pin their, their ID cards in their desk? They, they, they get lost. Yeah. You know, generally, you know, with little kids, you know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, we would always just print out a card for them, a small card, mm -hmm. until they learn their PIN number. Um, but we find that actually the younger kids do a better job with it. And a lot of time the teachers will work with the children to help them learn their PIN number. So mm -hmm. We used it as a lock screen for a while. Oh. They memorized it. <laughs> oh, good idea. <laughs> that is a good idea. No, the teachers do practice with um, the kids in the young grades too. So it's great. Thank yeah. you. And we can always look them up without it. Parents, don't worry. I had a note here. You know, parents, don't worry. If your children forget their PIN number, they don't need to panic. They can come up and we can look them up and tell them what their PIN number is using their name. So, yeah. Okay. Thank Thanks. Much. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Okay. Uh, on to item F G H. 
<laughs> the Director of Finance and Operations Report. Mr. Marshall, do you have an enrollment update for us? Thank you. Yes, I. so I did not put... Um, Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> this really shouldn't be happening until 10, not right? We're on uh, summer hours. Summer hours. Uh, the Can you make that update pretty quick? Here we go. Thank you. Should be coming back. Yeah. I think it's We're almost there. We're almost there. It's nine, but we're close. All right. Thank you. Um, so I don't have, uh, you don't have any hard um, reports in the packet. Uh, I did present on enrollment the last uh, meeting. Um, there's minimal changes from our last report. Um, we are still looking uh, and watching closely our Hanson um, kindergarten and first grade numbers as they um, as they were they were high um, then and so we will continue to monitor those. Um, outside of that there, there has not been any significant changes uh, to report on. Um, our next meeting uh, I will have um, you know another full enrollment uh, report once we get our elementary um, administrative assistants back in the building and we start working back in our student information system there sometimes that's when we're learning that kids might have um, moved out of district or you know and didn't provide us with information and so um, we start to see that kind of update and then we get some really solid numbers as to the start of school year so uh, we'll continue to um, to update from that standpoint I also wanted to just provide an update on transportation. Um, as uh, Mr. Follin kind of said, he will have some um, uh, preliminary kind of uh, communication going out and then uh, unfortunately there's going to be a flood of communication from a variety of departments, one of them being transportation. Um, so we are uh, excited to welcome first student into the district. Uh, you might have seen uh, the buses running already for our summer programming. Um, and so we are working closely with them uh, to get our routes finalized. Uh, I do, we do expect to have our routes uh, back from them next week. Uh, bus routes are expected to be posted in the Canton Citizen on the 25th. Uh, they will be posted on our website um, at the same time. Temporary bus passes uh, will go out on the 24th. And then uh, sometime between September 19th and 23rd, uh, the permanent bus passes will go home um, with students directly from school. Um, as I think it was noted in the handbook, um, all of our buses this year are going to be equipped with uh, audio and visual recording devices, um, cameras. That includes our Canton bus as well that's running a route. Um, we actually sent that bus already down to the first student um, maintenance yard and they equipped our bus um, for us with uh, that technology, which is fantastic. And then uh, first student has a parent-facing app uh, that's called First View. And uh, we are working already behind the scenes to get everything set up. We don't expect that to be deployed uh, to families until the middle to end of October. Um, the reason is uh, them just coming into the district, we are going to have some changes to routes and we know that we're going to need to modify routes. So we don't want to set up the app and get parents kind of all set and then need to make changes. So we want to make sure that it's right. In future years, this will continue to just roll. Um, so uh, the delay is just really in this first year of, of working with them. Um, and so that parent app, uh, you know, we will send all that communication out to families when we're ready and parents will have the ability to opt in. 
parents that do opt in will be able to provide a cell phone number and we will be able to provide cell phone like real live updates. Your bus is running five minutes late. Um, your bus broke down this morning and your replacement bus is this bus. Um, so instead of typically waiting for bus O and bus N shows up and you're like, that's not my bus. And the bus driver says, it's your bus today, get on the bus. And you're like, that's not my bus driver. That's, you know, you're gonna get some real live information um, to you on your device um, if you so choose to, to opt in. You can also jump onto the app and actually see where the bus is um, at, at any point in time. And, um, and I think that's gonna be critical just for families to be able to see that. So we're really looking forward to having that kind of upgraded technology in the district and to be able to provide that um, type of kind of immediate communication to families. Uh, we will have some changing in the way that our buses are uh, labeled. Um, I do believe they're going to be all numbered. Uh, so it will be a C1, uh, C2, C3. So the letters will go away. C just is, um, you know, Canton designation. And then we'll have uh, the numbered buses. So that will all be part of the, the route and we'll be able to share all of that. Um, so there will be a letter coming. It will have contact information. Brett McLeod, our transportation director, um, is kind of first line of contact. But we will also be providing um, dispatch information directly for first student. And so that uh, office uh, always has somebody there. And so families can always call that office directly as well um, if they have questions or concerns or something happens sometimes, you know, um, uh, a phone, a lunch bag or something was left on the bus. And, um, you know, if you can get the dispatch kind of quickly, sometimes we can get that resolved um, almost immediately for some of those types of um, scenarios. So we're really looking forward to this. I think um, for the most part, we're trying to keep routes as similar as possible to previous years so that if you're used to, um, you know, your, your child getting on the bus at a specific time, it shouldn't be drastically different. But there are a few routes that we are changing um, just because it, it makes sense logistically um, as we plug this stuff into the software um, to see this bus makes more sense um, to go in this direction as opposed to the direction that it might have been going in previous years. Um, but it should be minimal, minimal changes. And with that, that's all I have to report. Okay, awesome. Very excited about those buses. Other comments, questions? I have two, just two quick questions. Yep. As far as the app, can the older, can like middle and high school kids get it too? Because, I mean, they'll be the ones at the bus stop. Yeah, so anybody anybody could access the app, um, you know, multiple. It's not just one it's not person. Restricted. Yeah, okay. it's not restricted. Um, so students would be able to have access. And then even, like, our principals, like, they suggest, like, you know, we should just put the app on. We will have access, and principals will have access to all. So a family will only have access to their own route. Um, but a principal could be off-site and, you know, for some reason, and they'll be able to see all of the buses, you know, so they'll be able to see. And, uh, you know, what's interesting sometimes is you can see the bus that never left the yard, and, and it's because that bus was broken down. And so there's, like, another bus coming, and they'll start to say, like, why my bus, you know, it's 15 minutes late already. And then you'll hopefully get that text to say, you know, this bus is coming in its place. So thank you for that. Uh, next item is I, our consent agenda. We have the regular session minutes from July 18th and 21st, the executive session minutes of July 21st, and the warrant from August 12th, all 2022. Anyone like to remove an item from the consent agenda for discussion or further review? Okay, hearing none. Uh, 
Can I get a motion to approve the consent agenda? I so move. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Aye for me, for zero. Consent agenda is approved. And then moving on to item J, we have our update of subcommittee task force and liaison posts. Let's start down the end of the table with Ms. Gallagher. Okay. We have a PRHC meeting on Monday. Uh, so we'll have more to report after that. And the registration is open for the delegate conference. Um, so if you are interested in participating in person, it is time to sign up. Yeah, I just noticed that reading BDE. <laughs> B E D H in our policies it talks about the committee deciding which conferences it should attend. This would be one. Mm -hmm. If we could we could attend one that this would be it. And it's really I mean, they run multiple sessions at the same time. So it's not redundant for all of us to go. You know, we sure. can strategically decide who goes where. Um, anyway, it's it's a great conference if it might you're be available. the first in a long time that we would have we can't have school committee there. Okay. Excellent. Okay, so CCPC, we have a meeting coming up on Monday, so I'll have more updates then. Um, content and communications, um, we are about to start the rotation again. I need to get the quote to you from the newspaper uh, about running the ads throughout the year again. And we have a notification that there is a mass mailing of the newspaper on, I think it's the September 15th edition. So we will make sure that we have some messaging that I send out to each of you for review Great. Uh, beforehand. Like welcome to the school year. Welcome back. Great. Exactly. exactly. And just a, a general, I guess, um, in, within content and communications, a general notice that if people have questions, concerns, whatever about the school system, it's always best instead of posting on social media or in addition to posting there, whatever, um, to go through the proper channels or contact the school. Um, school system somehow to, to find the actual resolution for it. And actually just proper channels. So whether if you could just outline that if Jerry mm -hmm. want to outline that. You know, you don't go right to the superintendent for example. You'd start you know, we we'll, we'll, if we were to parents start. Teacher, principal. Yeah, it's if it's um, something going on in the classroom or a question um, whether it's progress or, or just sort of a technical question, always start with the teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, if there's a, a wondering that's a, it's a maybe a building question, you can always go right to the principal, mm -hmm. assistant principal or principal. And I think try to, the, the folks that work in the building, sometimes it's a counselor okay. too. Um, but yeah, working through that building-based uh, discussion, the, the, the folks that work directly with the students on an everyday basis, uh, they are the ones that, to do that. Um, often, sometimes I'll get questions, sometimes Ms. Hutchinson will get questions just because they're not sure where to start. We often direct people always back to the building, so. And I think I'd like just to add to that, to say that generally, it, it is in our policy manual, and it's actually that we're talking about right now, generally the school committee is, uh, you know, what's in our purview are going, going to be items that have to do with policy, finance, uh, uh, supervision of the superintendent, along with some other things like public relations and so forth. Um, specific, issues for students or parents or teachers generally are not within the purview of the school committee. We, we would deal with these issues maybe at a macro level as it might affect um, a change to our policy manual or maybe the potential 
um, review of the implementation of a practice that's outlined possibly in the policy manual. However, these policy manuals are meant to allow for administrative and um, teacher you know, latitude for decision making so they don't get down to the exact tactics of that management makes in a given day. But I, I did want to say that when it comes to um, individual issues, the school committee is typically not equipped or tasked with um, have, um, solving those. And the reason for that is privacy, um, right to privacy for all the individuals involved. And it's, it's um, not necessarily the role at all um, legally for our, our public body. I actually forgot to mention something, and it is tangential to what you're talking about at the moment. There is a charting the course uh, event workshop that's being held here in Canton by the MASC on September 24th at 8.15 a.m., and it is for current or prospective school committee members to understand the scope of the role and to learn about the finance and the conflict of interest and the special education and all of these things that go to being committee members. So if anybody in the public is interested, um, or any of you. Yeah, I think that's great. And actually in our, um, our own guidelines, we are supposed to be taking that course every three years, it might be two, tell me which one it is. One's compliance and ethics is two, and then the other one is every three. But we should be repeating it ourselves. I forget if it's two or three. I can we'll have to look it up. Yeah, we have it. Yes. It's a good note, and I will be trying to write that one. Okay, um, and then item uh, updates from me, uh, there are none. <laughs> uh, the MPIC is on hold. Uh, uh, until September, that's the Master, Master Planning Implementation Committee, and then of course the BRC is also um, on hold during the summertime. I will offer that Mr. Poland, Mr. Marshall, and I met with Janice Troy, who is the head of CAPE, uh, the Canton Alliance for Public Education, just to sort of sit down now that we're in a post-pandemic world where CAPE is at, how it dovetails with the district, funding, some of the same conversations we've had around the CAPS. So we met this week and more discussions to come. And the other thing I will say is right now on August 21st, the school committee will be at the Canton Farmers Market. Right now it is Ms. O'Halloran and I, so if anyone wants to join, we'll be there. Um, but we invite folks to come out and chat, chat with us and you know bring us your thoughts, your concerns, your considerations, your suggestions. And we'll be there from 10 to 2 on August 21st. Just an update on sustainability. Um, we have been meeting regularly. Uh, there's been a push for uh, the black earth composting. I think they were just at the farmer's market. Um, so uh, there are some incentives, I think, that are out there right now for black earth. Uh, we are looking for the school specific to try to implement some more recycling programs. We're trying to start on a small scale. Um, one program is the recycling of uh, disposable gloves like in our food service operations where we go through thousands of gloves so just a small container and um, there's a company that will take those gloves um, to be recycled and then we're looking at the potential of um, some black earth composting maybe starting small in um, some teachers areas um, which is some small bins um, and that's something that we're just really just starting to talk about and and we'll be working to explore uh, throughout this year to try to bring some sustainability initiatives into the schools I know that we have some faculty and staff that um, are all about this work we have many students that are all about this work um, we operate on a very large scale and it is difficult sometimes to kind of get these things rolling um, and so 
we're uh, we're working uh, to try to start rolling some of these initiatives out in the school buildings. Terrific. And then uh, just a note uh, on the Canton Farmers Market, the, the school department will also be there um, the week prior and the week after. Uh, was it August 21st? We're there. The school committee is there the 21st. So the 14th, the 21st, and the 28th. You'll see the schools in some way, shape, or form. We'll have some representatives there on August 14th. And then uh, many of our, our principals will be there at the back of school, like uh, or day, I should say. Um, but it's been great. Um, I had a chance to visit them and some of our students uh, just this past Sunday. Um, so we continued that strong connection with them. We appreciate the opportunity to meet the public there. It is every three years for the charting the course. Thank you for bringing that up. And I just checked it out. Um, and then just uh, what was it, last week, August 4th, we did meet to review the district action goals in a workshop, which was very uh, wonderful. Actually, I thought the progress was great. And so we'll be learning more about that come um, August 20th. 25th. 25th. Which is the uh, day of our next meeting. So I'm going to move on to item K, other business. Are there any other topics? And future business, as I mentioned, the next open session is scheduled for Thursday, August 25th at 6 p.m. And with that, let's get a motion to adjourn. So moved. Second. So all in favor? Aye. Aye. Nine for me. Four zero. Good night, everybody.